This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Through the Years, the podcast where two Brian Daniel fans review Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. I am, as always, Trevor Dame, and the number one of all Brian Daniel fans, Matt Feuerstein, as always, right next to me. So I, uh, I just Googled Brian Daniel, um, just hoping that there'd be like some other like C-list celebrity from some era with that name. But unfortunately, it is still Daniel Bryan that comes up. And uh, there is a guy on LinkedIn named Brian Daniel. Looks like he has something to do with infrastructure, something like that. So I, I, I probably am a fan of him. Wasn't there a saying that they say never trust somebody with two first names? Isn't there? Isn't that like a saying or something? Well, if it's not, it is now. Hmm. So I'm not that. Ba- oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I want to hear this. Um, I'm not original enough to come up with that myself. But I guess I was also going to say to everybody, thank. You. We've been a little bit longer between between episodes, as we uh, warned you. We've had some life things going on. I'll just say, thanks for. Thanks for waiting, and uh, I'm in a new house now, so if there's, like, screaming kids running by or a weird sound or I'm, you hear me getting stabbed by, like, a hobo, that's just to be expected. We'll try and deal with it as best we can. I apologize in advance. There probably won't be any noises, but I'm just paranoid since it's my first podcast in a new house. How do you deal with being stabbed as best you can? Um... You, well, I would do it quietly to not raise the noise levels on the podcast, and I'm Canadian, so that, you know that cliche politeness. I'd probably ask them to just do it more in the thigh, you know, stuff like that. And they are so polite that they would oblige you. Oh yes, definitely. They'd you'd be like, do it in the thigh, and they'd be like, pardon, and you would say, in the thigh, and they'd be like, oh, cheers. Matt, I've been stabbed a hundred times. Oh, but well, that's more than I expected. Something that feels a lot better than being stabbed, Matt, is uh, the great sh- listening to the great shows on the Place to Be Nation Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. And the show I've been listening to lately, actually this week, I listened to not one, but two episodes of it. That's how much I enjoyed it, was Worldcast, which is a brand new podcast with three episodes on the network. And it's uh, going to review show by show a wrestling, uh, the shows from a wrestling company, who would guess, like, that's a crazy new concept that even we didn't invent, but um, it's, a uh, that sounds like a jab when I, it's not, so I don't know why I even said it like that. Anyway. Uh, You're throwing so it, much shade. It's, it's, uh, actually, no, it's a great podcast. It's Pete Kelly and Johnny Sorrow, so most of the old um, Titans of Wrestling gang have come back, and they're reviewing world-class wrestling on the WWE Network show by show from the start of it on the WWE Network, and it's just a really fun show. It's got that same camaraderie. If you liked it them on Titans of Wrestling, they pick up right where they left off, and it's interesting because they're reviewing the WWE Network world-class starts a fair bit away before the real rise of world-class, and I feel like a lot of they talk about this on the first episode. I feel like a lot of people when they watch World Class, especially if you weren't living through it, you go back and kind of watch the heyday and maybe a little bit of the sad end. But it's interesting because they're going to be starting actually with a period that maybe doesn't get talked about quite as much, where before it really heats up, and then they'll be 
obviously going show by show as it heats up. So it's a really interesting show. And again, there's only three episodes right now, so you can hop on board. Like, there's no big, long backlog to catch up like we're building. But, you know, lots of great shows on the network. That's the one I'm recommending this episode. And two little more pieces of housekeeping. Oh, I got one. Oh, you should you, you go first then. Yeah. Um, so uh, we were told um, by a couple people, and uh, this is a completely valid comment, and I probably agree with it. That on the last episode we maybe got a little too silly. Um, uh, by you know some of the DV, the deep vein thrombozos mentioned that. Um, so <laughs> I uh, I do think that this episode we're going to try to keep it a little bit more serious and straight and honorable and to the point. But I am not giving up on deep vein thrombozos. Everyone listening right now is a deep vein thrombozo. Hashtag DV thrombozos. T H R O H M B O Z O S. Um, so I just wanted to make that clear. That is my. Uh, not my last silly comment of the episode, but my last planned silly comment of the episode. Matt, I bought this fart button, and now you're telling me I can't use it. I mean, I gotta have my creative freedom, Matt. I don't know what you're doing to me right now, but... Farts are honorable. <laughs> that, was, that was the rejected name for this podcast. People <laughs> don't know that. But my little two pieces of housekeeping, the first one is... On our now legendary episode uh, where we reviewed Honor Invades Boston, we uh, talked about, did Quiet Storm invent the Canadian Destroyer? And I asked for people, uh, uh, listeners, to try and help me out. I wrote, I started a thread on wait, the wait, figure. Wait, 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 listeners, what do we call them? Deep Vein Thrombosos. I asked them to help okay. To help us out, I uh, started a thread on figure four, uh, their message board, tried to get answers, couldn't. The one thing I didn't think to do was just ask Quiet Storm because he's on Twitter. Rob Naylor did that. He was, I don't think he listens, but he, he came to the same same question that I did. And Quiet Storm, I don't, I mean, Quiet Storm obviously might be biased because he's he, but he said, yes, he did invent the Canadian Destroyer. So my whole life is a lie. Uh, if, if Quiet Storm is to be, be believed, an American invented the Canadian destroyer. Mm, I'm uh, I'm deeply sorry for you. Yes, um, that's it was like the one a... thing that you guys had over us. It was, it's and now gone. what is? Is it just like I don't know what I don't know. What, I just have this podcast, man, and I just have you. Mm. But I'm unfortunately American. Sorry, <sighs> it's not something I'm proud of. <laughs> The other note we have is another little piece of criticism. And by the way, criticism is fine. We welcome all comments, good or bad. Um, Rob Viper, you know, who some might know on Twitter, he talks to Lucha, friend of Cubs fan, and, you know, a human being in his own right. He's not defined by his friendships, Trevor. And he uh, he listens to the show, and, and he wrote a comment to me on Twitter a week or two ago that I saved. Oh, he was listening to the Glory by Honor episode where we talked about how Glory by Honor was trying to steal some people away, have them no-show the Ring of Honor show that night. Um, Rob writes, XPW were certainly dicks and trolls, but you let Ring of Honor and Gabe way off the hook with his attitude that Ring of Honor employs guys they don't. An attitude he still has today. He's never been good at sharing. 
This was a total promotional war that wrestlers got caught in in middle of. Gabe is just as shitty for threatening to blackball guys who worked XPW. If anything, he'd have come off better if he let the guys go make their one-night payoff and still work Ring of Honor, unless Ring of Honor had already advertised them in meaningful matches. So, what I want to say here, I want to first kind of springboard off of this to say, one problem we're going to have with this podcast is... A lot of the kind of back channel and back and like non-major message boards that maybe were, would give other sides to some of these Ring of Honor stories, they're gone. They're not easily accessible. So a lot of the our my background is going to come from places like The Observer, which was leaning heavily on getting information directly from Gabe. And because of that, I do agree with the sentiment that we might occasionally... I believe we're pretty fair about like criticizing Gabe's booking, but in terms of Ring of Honor, kind of the background of the business, we might not always get every side we should. In, so fact, what in, I, in fact, I'll say in the Observer, you know, because I read the ROA stuff very closely uh, all through like the mid to late two thousands, and you know, really until the company was sold, and maybe even after, uh, they never covered any backstage controversies at all in the Observer. In and ROH. there's things. There's one oh, thing. Well, of we'll course, get... obviously, the uh, Rob Feinstein scandal that'll come up in, in a couple of years. But, but I'm talking about you know stuff like you know just it, um, unhappiness in the promotion and that you know Meltzer never criticized ROH as a business. I'll, I'll say yeah, that. he wasn't delving as deep and getting as many sources. I would I would guess as he would with a, more, a larger promotion like WWE. And you know, people would even some people would even complain at different points in history that maybe he was leaning too heavily on certain sources with bigger promotions, but definitely there's blind spots he has where, or things that just don't line up, like something that Dave would go into over and over again through the years, wink, uh, no pun intended, or reference intended, I guess, um, would be, he would talk about how Ring of Honor always said if they just did a bit over 400 in live attendance, they would break even on all their shows. And obviously that didn't turn out to be true because... We know now through people saying things that Ring of Honor was close to going out of business a little over a year in, and they were drawing over 400 people for most of these shows. At least that's what it was announced in the Observer. So there are things like that where what there there are, there are definitely stories where what Dave is told and is reporting doesn't end up it leaves things out or it doesn't line up properly. So all I can say is we're trying to be fair. And if anyone ever has information, a couple people have over over the life of the podcast so far, that you feel would be good for an upcoming episode, you know, a different point of view, a different quoted source on something, um, feel free, please, to email it to me or to us at throughtheyears at gmail.com. And the only thing I ask is that you you tell me when you send it if you want us to use your name or not. It, because I would love to credit people I have in the past when we've used stuff, but I realize not everyone wants their name on a chronological review Ring of Honor podcast. So just let us know. And yeah, we're going to try and be fair, but it is, I, I acknowledge, a difficulty we have in um, covering everything, maybe with the all, like getting all sides of the historical context. But when it comes to uh, the actual review of the shows, you're going to get the real deal here, here folks. Yeah, I, th- I, I would be hard-pressed for people to say, like, listening to us review what we can easily see firsthand, which is the shows, and say that we haven't been pretty, you know, even. We've, we've, ha- we've really criticized some things. We've really loved some things. We've 
really averaged some things. So, again, just it's not for one of trying to be fair. But uh, thank you again for that comment. And now we can go. There's just a little bit of Ring of Honor news that happened at this time before we get into the show proper. The first piece of news is RF Video, the parent company of Ring of Honor, settled out of court some time back in a lawsuit regarding selling bootleg tapes of Pride in All Japan pro wrestling shows, which Pride purchased the American marketing rights to a few months back about All Japan. Well, it was reported this week in Weekly Fight Magazine in Japan that the settlement as $2 million per year over five years. That figure is ridiculously high due to a confidentiality over the settlement. It can only be reported as it was a settlement for an undisclosed amount. So... I mean, I just bring this up to give a little context of, you know, when we think about Ring of Honor, there's going to be a few shows from now we'll talk a little bit about how that was a point they almost went out of business behind the scenes, if not for Kerry Silken stepping in. I mean, Ring of Honor had, you know, other financial obligations, obviously, when you look at stuff like this. We don't know how much they actually were having to pay, but... And the fact, I think Feinstein has admitted afterwards that as they started the company, they kind of ramped down on producing fewer shoot interviews. So really, they were putting a lot of eggs in the Ring of Honor basket, it seems like, at this point. And, and I want to mention something, just maybe sort of like backtrack a little bit, but it came to my mind. Um, when you were talking about ROH's business and the whole break-even aspect of things, um, one thing that was never reported ever in the observer because you know we talk a lot about ROH's attendance and stuff but i imagine you know they're also a video company and i imagine most of their money comes from the sale of home video uh, at this point tapes and eventually soon DVDs and you know that's always been a mystery of how well they did there uh, and it's a huge part of the puzzle so it's analyzing ROH's business is really difficult and obviously, uh, Rob wasn't just talking about business. I, I feel like maybe I leaned a little too hard in that direction. I mean, he's also just talking about, you know, the politics, the deals, the ethics of some of the things, you know, was Ring of Honor. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, Ring of Honor was not angels about everything themselves. No, they're a wrestling company, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there's lots of stories about Rob, obviously, and stories about Gabe and s- mistakes he's made and his legendary temper and all sorts of things. But... Yeah, like you said, the Ring of Honor thing was always stated as if we get to this certain number of people, like 400 and change, we'll break even, and then the goal is we make a profit on the video. But again, without knowing how the video is sold, it's tough to even assess all of the claims about how well they did. Exactly. But the other story I want to mention is just one sentence Dave writes in one of the observers leading up to the show. They are they are back towards leaning and by they he means Ring of Honor. They are back toward towards leaning against keeping television in Philadelphia, but the decision hasn't been finalized. I swear to God, this is like the fifth or sixth time Davis reported that Ring of Honor is either go, thinking about keeping it, but then they want to give it up. And I know I've said this before, but I I am going to mention it every time it's mentioned because the numbers of times it's mentioned in the Observer is ridiculous. The fact that Ring of Honor is having an existential crisis through the Observer about their television just tickles me to no end that every month it's like, well, maybe we should keep it. Yeah, I I guess there was five more fans. Uh, You know what? I don't think it helped. Just back and forth. You would think at one point Dave would just say, you know what? 
guys make a decision. I'm not going to write this up in the Observer every month, but I guess he feels compelled because it is about their television program. But yeah, it's probably just one of Dave's like just like a source of interest, like especially in 2002, like a TV show for a wrestling TV show actually on TV. <laughs> what's what's going to happen with it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh so hard, but, well, not too hard, but now, finally, okay, let's just stabilize. I've been waiting waiting weeks for this. I'm excited. Night of the Butcher, Ring of Honor's 11th show, took place December 7th, 2002, at the Murphy Rec Center in Philadelphia, like most of their shows did. But the one interesting thing is this was, in some ways, Ring of Honor's first public failure because this show was not supposed to happen in the Murphy Rec Center in Philadelphia, Dave reports in the Observer that they were supposed to give Philadelphia a rest until final battle on the 28th of December, and this show was scheduled in ha- for Hamburg, Pennsylvania. It was going to be their debut there, their second new town apart from Philly, and it was moved here due to low ticket sales, and as a result of moving back on short notice to the Murphy Rec Center, they knocked down the prices of all tickets except front row to $10, and Probably because of that late change, they drew their worst crowd yet of 350 people. So, um, yeah, it's, it's funny because when they moved, when they tried Boston, they uh, the report uh, attendance was like 500 both shows. And in the next year, we're going to see them go to a lot of other cities to mix results, some good, some bad. But this is the first time, you know. They put their toe in some water, and they had to quickly back out. It was too cold. Hamburg is, a, w- Hamburg is a weird spot anyway. Like, um, it's sort of, I guess, in between, you know, uh, like Harrisburg and Reading and Allentown in, P- in Pennsylvania. It's, you know, maybe, what, an hour or two north, uh, northwest of Philly. It's not really in a prime spot. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was, like, a good location for ECW or something. That's kind of my guess as to why they would choose to put it there, but... You know, when you're looking at the third ever location for ROH, it seems like a weird choice. Yeah, and, you know, Wakefield was not that far away from Boston. They're going to be going to New York soon. You know, Philadelphia and then Hamburg, Pennsylvania. You know, it seems a little... doesn't quite fit in with the other ones. Yeah. And Dave writes as a result that... um. This was a. This is. I don't know. It must be from Road Reports or from Gabe. He says it was a very different crowd, as a lot of the New York and Boston regulars didn't come without the bus trips, and even many Philadelphia regulars weren't there. A lot of new fans came to see Abdullah the Butcher and didn't know who anyone else was, and were not into the mat work at all. And it was more like an ECW crowd than a Ring of Honor crowd. Uh, so if you notice in the crowd as you watch, a lot of the old ECW regulars, or at least a few of them, that I have not noticed in previous ROH crowds were there. Um, most notably, uh, I've no- I noticed the, the long hair sunglasses guy. I don't know if he has like a, a name that people call him, but you know, <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, when if, I was a, when if not, I was, he when has I, the name now. When I was a kid, um, my friend and I used to call him Rob Zombie Guy. <laughs> that's a good name. Yeah, that's what we because it was like we the first time we noticed him in the mid nineties. We were like, "Is that Rob Zombie?" But it was not Rob Zombie. And uh, it's it's weird. Like I can tell. I'll say this right now. This was the worst crowd Ring of Honor has had, not just in size but in reaction. 
a lot of things don't get that loud of a reaction, or even when it does, it sounds more sparse, like it's only, you can almost make out distinct chants sometimes from two or three people, or applause, it sounds like it's coming from a quarter of the crowd, but I thought that might have been just the 350 fans, but I'm, if Dave is to be believed, it also might be, maybe it did attract, I don't know how many people were going to come to a show in 2002 just to see Abdullah the Butcher. Right, it sounds like, weird to me, but who knows. And, I mean, what does that say if they got a lot of new fans and still drew around 100 people less than they normally would, does that mean that like half of Ring of Honor's normal Philly audience didn't show up to $10 tickets? I mean, and then they filled in some of that with Abdullah the Butcher fans? I have no idea, but... Yeah, I mean, to, to, I mean, I guess it's just people have different, um, you know, standards of how often they'll come to shows. But I know that two shows in the same location does seem like a lot to me. Like, obviously, I have gone to two shows, even in back-to-back nights many times in my life as a wrestling fan, sometimes even at the same location. For instance, like SummerSlam weekends, uh, last couple of years. I didn't go this year, but previous two years. But still, like, you know, when you're used to a once-a-month kind of deal – Twice a month does seem like a lot. So maybe they said, oh, we'll just go at the end of the month. Yeah, and, you know, as Dave said, the, the plan was they wanted to give Philly a rest, is the term he used. And now, because of this, they're running two shows in three weeks in December in, in the same building in Philly. So, but if, uh, to give a little spoiler, like a hot attendance spoiler for the next show, the next show does well. It goes back to its normal levels. So maybe it was also, again, people had plans. They just didn't want to go on short notice. But whatever it was, one other interesting thing that happened was, I guess these happened before the start of the, of the show that we see. We see clips of these later, the short clips, but Ring of Honor actually taped some original matches for their local Philly TV show, High Impact TV. And those matches were Paul E. Normus beating Mace from the Christopher Street Connection, Brian Danielson beating Marcos, Paul London beating Angel Dust from Special K, the Hit Squad beating a tag team called the Ghostface Killers, and AJ Styles beating a debuting Jimmy Ray. Yes, this is Jimmy. Little trivia note: this, even though it's not on the DVD as a whole match, this is actually Jimmy Ray's debut in Ring of Honor. Wait, wait, it, was, de- it, it wasn't the Ghostface Killers; it was the Outcast Killers. Oh God, I copied this right from Dave, yeah. and he called them the Ghostface Killers. Yeah, but they, they showed it on the actual. Um... No, you're right. Highlights, yeah. You're right. You're right. Oh my god. Maybe Dave's just was really in a big Wu Tang phase. Like if he later on calls someone inspect a deck by mistake or something, well, (laughs) well, no, he was really repping the thirty six chambers. But uh, yeah, so Outcast Killers. But again, this was the debut for Jimmy Rave, and Dave wrote that uh, Jimmy Rave of NWA Wildside debuted and made a good impression and will likely be back. And yes, he would, Dave. All of the uh, all of the highlights I show in the DVD don't look that great, but the AJ Styles Jimmy Rave match does look pretty good, and uh, and it is quite the debut for somebody who became like a major part of ROH to to be on the uh, to be on the the TV show that very few people even remember existed. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's weird to think. Where you think of Jimmy Ray, you think of 2004, 2005, and the embassy, obviously. It's weird to think that, you know, it's not even, 2002 isn't even over, and he's actually, you know, in the company here right now. Part of the uh, part of the reason, maybe, that the crowd was a little more uh, quiet was because of this TV taping. Because 
I do think that the more stuff you have before the main show, the less excited the crowd is once the main show starts. That's just always something I've noticed uh, for every promotion. Especially with you're reusing a lot of the biggest stars on the show, because that means they're already have going to see Brian Danielson, Paul London, AJ Styles. Either they're all have all already had a match, even if it, even if probably most of these were squashes for a short TV show. Still, still, yeah, you, you're going to lose something when you've already seen a guy once, or in the case of some of these guys, by the end of the night you would have seen them in three matches. So you notice how, like, for the past few months. Really, probably since August, they've had guys wrestle, certain guys wrestle multiple matches on a show every single time. Whether it was uh, Loki in the, the first Boston show or the tag tournament. Um, I don't remember if anyone wrestled. Tw- oh, yeah, Homicide wrestled twice in uh, Glory by Glory Honor. Glory by Honor, yeah. And you had Loki wrestling twice um, at All Star Extravaganza, as well as the Gauntlet series where guys wrestled multiple matches, including uh, Danielson. Then you had um, Samoa Joe wrestle more than once uh, at the last show, and then you have and Christopher again, Daniels and Amazing Red, yeah, both right. did double duty. Daniels and Red. So, and then this show you have another mini tournament uh, where guys wrestle multiple matches. So, I mean, I guess it's a long way already from the times a few months, just a few months ago when they had way too many guys on the show. Now they have fewer guys, and they just have guys wrestle more than once. But yeah, I agree, and also. Do you think it's just also he's realizing he he needs maybe to get the shows up to a certain level to lean heavily, like all the most of the guys we mentioned that pull double D are the best guys. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost like he's trying to hamburger help it a bit. He's trying to stretch one meal into two. Like, well, maybe I don't have enough to guys to make a great show if they all wrestle once. But if I take the best guys and have them pull double duty every once in a while, I can kind of stretch things. I mean, that's really was what Round Robin challenged. The first show, I mean, the second show, that was taking the three really great guys that they had at that time. And they didn't really have much else of really great wrestlers and trying to stretch that into three matches. So that's yeah, true. I, I also just but it is very noticeable, like how now like they've really finally started changing the formatting of the shows. Really, I guess after Glory by Honor, it really happened, where you don't have just match after match after match after match of, like, you know, a lot of matches involving guys who are not that impressive. It's really a much tight, you know, whether you think this show is good or not, and we'll talk about it, it's a much tighter um, kind of style of show pacing with longer matches uh, and not as much fluff. And since we uh, didn't see the TV taping matches in fall, I mean... Another thing is gone is the days of the 14-match show, where I think we have nine here. Right. So, again, a little more pared down. But the show proper starts with uh, Divine Storm and Trinity arriving backstage, and they say hello to their pals, the Hit Squad. Quiet Storm is way too excited to be wrestling Shockwave and Jeff Starr tonight. <laughs> He's just like, oh, we're going to show them what Ring of Honor is about. It's just like, <laughs> dude, calm down. It's Shockwave and Jeff Starr. Literally uh, never heard of them until that moment. Yeah. They all leave to work out together, and with the locker room empty, in comes Special K now with some women. I love that Special K just grows without announcing anything. Like, just random new people show up, and then we learn who they are later. Sometimes. Seems like every, yeah, every show they just multiply like bacteria. I love that. Um, Dixie attempts to dance with his still-injured leg, 
Joey Matthews turns the light on and off over and over so it strobes like they're at a rave, I don't know. And, uh, yeah, Special K just being wacky, taking over the empty locker room, turning into what looks like the sorriest excuse for a party ever. Um, next, we get a, our Ring of Honor standard music video, except Matt, completely different this time. They've ventured away from the techno and the occasional hard rock. This is our first time. It's rap music. Over it the is. now, uh, is it Julius Smokes who's doing that song? Because it kind of sounds like him. I'm not sure. I'm gonna let you take that bullet if you're wrong. Hey, I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying it kind of sounds. No, nope, like you it. just said it was. It's all on that, everybody. Okay. <laughs> Spread the word. But um, remember last show where we were so excited because we were like, oh, you know, they they stopped spoiling the the show with the highlight clips during these little music videos. They, they instead last show they actually showed clips from future shows and past shows and not the show you were about to watch. This time they take a half step back. There's a mix of clips from the show you're about to watch and from other shows. So I don't know why they did that again, including like, a very, I what I thought was an extremely unnerving slow motion clip of Abdullah the Butcher forking uh, Louis Ramos in slow motion, and it just he just I don't know. I mean, we'll talk more about the forkings later, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it was un- it was unnerving right off the bat. If if we were going to have a through the years drop board, that would be another that we would finally have a quote to get a little bit closer to all the quotes you have of me, which would be, "We're going to talk about the forkings later." <laughs> um, we're not going to talk but, about Judy. Yeah, I, it's it's not a a spoiler i guess that abdullah the butcher is going to stab someone with a fork but again it's another thing where they kind of they're giving away the money shot in the in the uh highlight package for the show you're about to watch anyway they're they're showing the most disturbing fork shot of the whole night in the highlight video but i mean it's it's not the end of the world it's just a weird thing ring of honor has been doing in this year Next, we get a Michael Shane backstage promo, and this is a promo where it's almost like some of the Christopher Daniels promos, where he has a lot of housekeeping he has to do. He has to establish, he goes through, he recaps his recent Ring of Honor highlights, he hypes up his match with Jeremy Lopez that he has tonight, he talks about how Biohazard is gone because he blames him for losing their tag team street fight against London and Rudy Boy on the last show, and then finally he talks about the groups in Ring of Honor and indicates that he maybe needs to find one as well, which is foreshadowing, obviously. It was average delivery, but I give him props in the sense where, again, he had to. there was like five bullet points he had to get out in probably a two-minute promo. So when you're an indie guy and you're not used to doing a lot of promos, I, I give you credit just for being able to get them all out in a, in a quick, coherent manner. Yes, and nothing wrong with this promo in the grand scheme of things. Uh, nothing particularly interesting about it either. Yeah, just, just again, just housekeeping. You can you can practically see Gabe off camera, like holding a list of here's the five things you have to say. You know the things you have to address. What it, um, what, what it does show is that they're still they have not yet lost interest in Michael Shane as yeah, a it, guy that they want to uh, they want to push. I have lost interest in Michael Shane, but you lost interest maybe months ring- ago. Yeah. But before we get to Michael Shane's match, we have one little more segment, which is 
The Hit Squad and Divine Storm return to the locker room. They catch Special K partying in it. They get way too angry about at what looks like the fakest, most innocuous party ever. Um, they're, drinking like is, co- they're drinking like cough syrup. Like it's, <laughs> it's real cool, guys. It's like six or seven people in a locker room, barely dancing. <laughs> just and, and, so, and they get so angry. They they, they seem get, like they seem like complete dorks. They're like yelling about respect and like. Like, what are they doing? And they literally just, like, moved their bags and, like, sort of started dancing a little. Like, they didn't even wreck the place. The place looks empty. But Special K leave because the Hit Squad and Divine Storm are hurting their buzz. Yeah, like, Special K in these segments, it's it's almost adorable because they don't look like people actually, like, scummy guys partying. They look like if you told a 12-year-old to do what they think teenagers do. Like, yeah. like oh, yeah, you, you turn the lights on and off, and you, you drink cough syrup, and you, you bob up and down, and you just laugh loudly because your parents aren't around. Like, it's just... You tear, it, just, you tear into a plate full of lettuce. That was the last show, but... Yeah. And... But Finally. The, 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 the hits, oh. I just say the Hit Squad and Divine Storm, they just seem like such losers here with their yelling about respect. Like, that's not like what, like, no one would think like that's a babyface move, even in 2002, where like, that's like, yeah, the most important thing is that everyone's really respectful. That's so cool. It's weird. It's one of those weird things, too, where it feels like Gabe kind of books the Hit Squad to be the face and the voice of Ring of Honor sometimes, where a lot of times. If they need to get somebody from the back to, like, if a, if a crazy situation happens or something, and we'll see it later, the Hit Squad's often the team that comes out to kind of try and smooth things over or deal with things. They're almost like the representatives of the company. And it's such a, I think, a weird choice. But I guess it goes back, I mean, the first show start and the first few shows started with the Hit Squad. They were always, for some reason, they really liked using them to be kind of the mouthpiece for the company in some ways yes uh, that's but, true and and in turn that makes them seem like dorks <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because and, the mission statement of roh as good as roh is in a lot of ways it's kind of dorky yeah definitely you know talking so much about honor and respect and just yeah sometimes they, they come off as just ruining people's fun and being almost uptight but Next, we get, finally, we get a match we can talk about. Michael Shane taking on and defeating Jeremy Lopez via pinfall in 10 minutes, 52 seconds after he hits, Michael Shane hits the pitcher perfect elbow. Matt, do you agree that the Michael Shane train is slowly coming to a stop here? Yeah, I'd say this is the match where it really hit me. Because, um, you know, Shane was just doing, like, super basic headlocks and the crowd wasn't really reacting and it took him probably like two-thirds of the match to even start playing to the crowd i I was right i wrote a bunch of times that he wasn't like it was just very very basic wasn't the crowd wasn't reacting at all then like late in the match he does a suplex and then he's like jaw jacks the crowd and it's like oh wow he actually worked the crowd a little bit um at one point he does the danielson i have till five referee thing um which i liked but other than that this was it was shocking how basic this match was, and um, and it was not like it was getting over either. So it's not like if he was doing like great character work, I could understand it. 
but it was just kind of dull. And Jeremy Lopez actually looked kind of good. Um, I've actually liked his whole thing. And they were talking about how he was going to go overseas for like six months and then come back. I don't. Did he ever? I'm not sure. Did he ever come back? If he did, it wasn't for anything noteworthy. I always worry that I'm going to miss something when I look this up. But the best I can tell from looking up cage reaction stuff, he in fact did not come back. And in fact, I wrote in my notes. We should, we should have kept a tally months ago, it's too late now probably, of all the times Gabe says some new guy will be back or has a bright future in Ring of Honor and then they just disappear or come back for one show or two shows. And Jeremy Lopez is the poster boy for months ago in The Observer. They said, oh, they saw potential in Lopez and thought about putting him in a tag team with Tony Mamaluke. That never happened. Then here, like you said, Gabe says, oh, he'll be back after Japan. He does go away to Osaka Pro for months, but he never comes back as far as I can tell. Interesting, yeah. Uh, Shane does so many chin locks here that at a certain point I actually wrote, yeesh. Like, just like, <laughs> I, I was wondering if he was like, like, was he upset that he was in the opener or something? I mean, I, I don't know, but, or if that's just his thing, like he's going to be uh, 2004 Randy Orton or something, um, or 2000 and whatever, Randy Orton. Um, but... <laughs> He uh, <laughs> he d- he does so many so many chin locks. Eventually he uh, he does a couple super kicks. Uh, does the does the top rope uh, elbow gets three. Um, it's just it was just very basic. Like it wasn't bad. Honestly, it wasn't. Lopez looked kind of good, but it just I don't know. Shane just didn't impress at all. I agree a hundred percent here. I wrote something that was. Pr- Pretty much almost exactly what you just said, which was one line I'm reading from my notes is, everything Michael Shane does here is perfectly fine in terms of execution, but bland and unimaginative. And I think one thing that really, I think it kind of sums up the match is, at one point, uh, Jeremy Lopez goes for a big baseball slide, he misses, and so, you know, Michael Shane was already on the floor, so... He's right there, right for the taking. Taking Shane moved out of the way. Lopez misses the um, baseball slide, and Shane just grabs him and throws him back in the ring. Like there's just no imagination. It, it, it's the most basic wrestling you you will see in 2002 Ring of Honor, almost other than maybe I don't know Takao Omori versus Sonny Siaki might have been a bit more basic, but it, you almost have to divide Michael Shane into before unscripted and after unscripted because i feel like before unscripted michael shang was this guy who did not wrestle this basic he wasn't maybe as flashy as some other guys but he came off as a guy more mechanically polished than a lot of his peers in the company who was a fairly good wrestler and who had potential and a guy with something to prove who was trying to prove it yeah he didn't come off as dry i mean he wasn't just, oh, I can't wait to see the next Michael Shane match, but he wasn't dry like this, wasn't bland like this. And unscripted, he has the great match with Paul Lennon, which, I'll again, I've said during that review, I'll go on record again as saying, even though London was the star of that match, Paul um, Michael Shane did a lot of good work and good things in that match, too. It wasn't just a one-man show. And it was like, immediately after that match, Every match since then has been very basic, very chin-lock-focused. It's like Michael Shane either, I don't know if he's frustrated, like you said, or or if Michael Shane literally just thinks that being a heel means put guys in chin-locks and occasionally kind of give a shit and grin to the crowd. But it uh, feels I, like that's all he does. I appreciate the, the, the concept of like the uh, kind of less dynamic work 
um, ball, ball working the crowd. But you have to do the working the crowd part a lot better than he does it. Yeah. Or at least a lot more than he does it. He doesn't really do it. Um, there are other wrestlers in the time of ROH that pull that off a lot better than he's doing it here. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, clearly, they haven't lost faith in him yet, but it's becoming less and less um, surprising that they do lose faith in him because you, you see it. You see him, him slip down the ranks. Um, the, one of the most noteworthy things about this match, honestly, was that the announcers were still going on and on and on about that Tommy Dreamer speech from oh, All-Star yeah. Extravaganza. Gabe is still like, oh my god, you could read the whole thing on the website, which I, I think you did, right? Yeah, yeah I, I think I know on the last show, they love that Tommy Dreamer speech so much, they, put a tran- they made a transcript of it and posted it on their website so people could read what he said. And Gabe actually promotes that transcript during this match on commentary. I mean, it was a nice speech, but it wasn't different than 800 other Tommy Dreamer putting over what local indie he was in speech that he's ever given. Yes. And I mean, and it, going, it was a good speech, but man, you could, you could, you know, kind of calm down about it a month later, after, <laughs> you know, two shows. I don't know. I mean, I, Tommy Dreamer, I guess the story was asked to do it. So I guess you feel like you got to really put it over because he went out of his way to do this thing for you. And Tommy Dreamer, I think to this day, is still a friend of Rob. So maybe it's also just being good to a friend. But yeah, way too excited about that. And I guess the only other thing I'll say is I'll agree with you also about Jeremy Lopez. He's looked like he hasn't stood out, but he's looked perfectly so- solid in all three of his matches. And I feel kind of bad that he never got anything but the but he i think he's 0-3 he got this match he got a tony mamaluke match and i think he got oh he got the xavier match each time he didn't do anything wrong and he just is he never grows from this he never gets a chance to do anything different anything more he's he's always just feels like he's serving the other guy and i feel bad for him but i mean he would get to go to osaka pro he would get to go to all japan so that's more than a lot of guys can say. That's true. Next, we get Colt Cabana's debut in Ring of Honor. He takes on CM Punk, and Colt defeats CM Punk via pinfall in 12 minutes, 28 seconds, after he hits the Colt 45, which is his kind of double underhook, over-the-shoulder backbreaker. Um, kind of an interesting trivia note from this is CM Punk's second-ever match in Ring of Honor is this match against Colt Cabana, and his second last match ever in Ring of Honor is Colt Cabana because it was supposed to be his final match, but then Punk would come back a little bit later as like a last minute addition to a show, one of the, uns- I think, Unscripted 3 or Unscripted 2 because of a weather or plane trouble. They had to get someone to try and fill in and they got permission from OVW to lend them Punk for one night. So I, it's I, kind of- I, th- I think, if I remember correctly, the Punk coming in was planned not because of the storm. It just that was a coincidence, but it was because Loki was fired from the promotion and he had had a book. He had a match against Roderick Strong booked. And and Gabe was like, there's going to be a big surprise at this show. Everyone has to come. And it was CM Punk. And, and, there, and also, there was a storm that night and other guys couldn't be there too. And that, that, that's sort of what happened. Hmm. That's good. That's good. I did not uh, remember that part. But... So yeah, it's a weird bit of trivia where it's the second match and the second last match he's ever had in Ring of Honor with Colt. Um, 
one this match is perfectly another match I would say average um how do I get into this um I would say it's indie and not in a great way I you see the opening sequence of this match and it's two guys trying to run through a series of fairly complex um probably pre-planned spots and then do the standoff to get the big applause break and you can really see they don't screw anything up, but athleticism has never been either of these guys' strong suits, particularly Punk. And there's a lot of things they do in this match where they pull it off, but it just doesn't look great. It um, Punk is a guy in particular where everything he does, he, he's not one of those guys that makes everything look easy. You can see every calorie Punk is burning when he does anything in a wrestling match. And I think... At his best, in a lot of matches, he makes that work to his advantage. But here, it's kind of like they're just trying to do a typical fast-paced 2002 indie match, and it, they haven't quite learned what their strength to play to their strengths yet. I would say um, it's not a horrible match. Again, they don't do, really do anything wrong. But watching them work, it's almost like it's like if you ever knew somebody. That that couldn't sing, and then they got vocal lessons, and technically now they can sing, but it's still not the same as listening to someone who is just a natural at it. There, you, you know, Colt's not hasn't really gotten to the big humor and the European grappling style yet. Punk hasn't lean isn't leaning as much into his personality and just focusing more on the things he can do. Punk is very much at this point at his indiest, where you know he's spamming all his. Uh, he, he, you know, Punk at this time, he always did, but especially at this time, he loved just taking whatever Japanese moves were hot and sticking them in the match. Like, he does the boot scrapes and the Shining Wizard here. Um, he does a spot that really annoyed me where he grabs Colt's arm and does the rope walk. And rope walk spots are always going to be kind of silly, but you can at least, if a guy does a rope walk from the corner to the middle of the rope and then jumps off into the center of the ring... You can say, okay, he climbed the turnbuckles to get to the top rope. He walked to the center of the ring so he could land his move in the middle of the ring where there's room. Punk does a spot here where he grabs Colt's arm in one corner, walks the entire rope to the other corner, and then jumps off and, like, hangs his arm over the top rope. Like, you didn't have to walk the rope at all to do that. It is literally, you literally just did that so you could say, hey, look at me. I can walk across an entire rope. And it's that kind of indiness, that kind of I can do it, it's weird, oh it's you know, it's what other people are doing. And I don't feel like that's where Punk really came into himself. Yeah, uh I I like this match more than you did. Um I say by a good amount. I, I agree with you almost entirely, um, with whatever with everything you said for the first, let's say, half of the match. I, I it was very it seemed very choreographed. You know, very rehearsed. Uh, the same exact thing that you that you said about the uh, about the rope walk spot. I wrote down. Um, you know, like you know, there was no no silliness by Colt, so there wasn't really much personality. But I was impressed how at the so at the during most of the match, I was like, all right, this is just like a kind of a silly indie thing. But I was impressed by how they got the crowd into the match by the second half, especially this crowd, which wasn't the easiest ROH crowd. And the crowd at a certain point was interested in who won. I'm not I couldn't totally tell of who they wanted to win, but they were definitely louder by the end than they were at the beginning, which is a good sign for 
essentially two new guys. You know, Punk had wrestled once before, and they have reputations. But, you know, this was kind of like their first chance to really, like, do their thing. And, uh, you know, I liked it. There was, um, you know, once they started getting to, like, the cult with his, uh, you know, he, he was dominant. He hit a big clothesline. And then Punk hit this reverse Rana, and the crowd really popped for that. Because, you know, those reverse Ranas, you know, almost always look painful. Um, and uh, there was a delayed cover. Cabana kicked out. Then they did their chop exchange, which, you know, again, they do a lot of in ROH. And they'll do a lot more tonight. Um, then Cabana went for, like, a spinning something but punk caught him with a, a good drop kick he hit the shining wizard for two um at this point the crowd was into the match i thought um and then punk he blocked the colt 45 um he, he escaped he escaped it twice and then cabana finally hit it for three i thought by the end it got kind of good so that's i mean i don't think it was a great match or anything and i thought i agree with you in the early part of the match but the fact that they were able to escalate it and escalate the crowd's reaction to it uh, you know, I thought that was a nice job. Uh, I didn't, I, I just, again, I want to stress, I didn't think it was bad. I thought it was average, so I didn't like it as much as you, but it wasn't a bad match. It just didn't feel like them yet, which I guess that makes sense. They're young at this point. And I, I agree. They did get the crowd into it, especially this crowd that wasn't always easy to get into things. I, I'm glad you point out that reverse Rana because the crowd popped really loud for that. And it's, I guess it's a reminder that, you know, I think nowadays on a PWG show, you can see a reverse Rana sometimes two or three times in a night. Back in 2002, I think a reverse Rana was still a pretty huge deal. And it's crazy if you watch this match to see. It gets a really big reaction. Um, one, oh, uh, I have to mention Jeff Gorman here who says that uh, because of CM Punk's Pepsi tattoos, some people call CM Punk Pepsi. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if there's a world backstage where people are like, hey, Pepsi, what's get over here. Well, Pepsi, how's it, it going? Didn't he come from like I, uh, IWC in Pittsburgh? And I'm pretty sure Punk was a, a regular there. So maybe they do call him that there. Who knows? That, that would be interesting. That, that's the next. Now that we've solved the, um, the Canadian Destroyer mystery, that's the next new Ring of Honor through the years podcast mystery. Did people really call CM Punk Pepsi? Maybe Homer Simpson did. <laughs> did do you remember? Do you know the reference that I'm doing, or is that go over? No. Well, there. I don't know when the episode where Homer was the big brother for this kid named. Oh, Pepe, and yeah. He was like, I love you too, Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they got along great, and then he had to give him up. Yeah, like. Oh. <laughs> so that kid grew up to be CM Punk. <laughs> Uh, Homer Gorman didn't did a, do Gorman did at one point say that because you know Colt Cabana is Colt classic, and he says you know so CM Punk and Colt Cabana are natural rivals like Coke and Pepsi. <laughs> and I I'll just mention I mean people probably already know this but the story behind CM Punk's Pepsi tattoo on his shoulder is obviously Punk is straight edge. The original straight edge band was Minor Threat. I think one of the guitarists in Minor Threat had a Coca-Cola tattoo, and Punk saw an interview. Someone asked him, why do you have a Coca-Cola tattoo? And he just answered, well, I like Coca-Cola. And Punk thought that was fun and cool and thought, well, I like Pepsi. I don't like Coca-Cola. And so he decided to copy, you know, someone from a band he liked. And that's why he has the big uh, Pepsi tattoo on his shoulder, at least according to CM Punk. Um, I also thought 
I thought Colt actually did a couple big, nice moves here. He did a really cool rotating clothesline to send Punk over the ropes on a counter. I thought his Asai Moonsault always looks good for a guy that's a little bit thick. Like uh, Colt, I always get a... Anytime a thick guy does a flying move, like when Doug Williams did a flying move on the last show, I always react a little more than maybe other people would for that. I like that. Um, I guess one other interesting thing I want to talk about this match is I found a old RF video shoot interview Punk did. And they asked him about his first two Colt Cabana matches in Ring of Honor. And he said they weren't as good as he thought some of their other matches in the indies were. And I thought it was interesting where he said he thought they were disappointing because they were in a, they took place during a rough spot in their friendship where he said that was a time where Colt was kind of getting over on his nerves in real life and they weren't really too chummy. And I thought that was fascinating because right around the time I found that piece of research, a quote was circulating on the internet, an old Mitsuharu Masawa quote where he thought that um, – he thought just the opposite. He he was talking about in this quote so wait, that so was... So Mitsuharu Masawa was talking about how he thought that in 2002, late 2002, CM Punk and Colt Cabana were really good friends? Yeah, he was talking about, oh, I thought the Ring of Honor matches were the best. But <laughs> no, he, he he was talking about... Um, <laughs> he was talking about how he felt like if wrestlers liked each other too much, you couldn't have as good a match. He felt like that the best matches came when people had some real tension. And here in this interview, I thought it was interesting. Punk says just the opposite. He felt like these were some of their not quite as good as some of their other matches because they weren't. They had that tension between them. So it just probably goes to also, show. It's probably also different when you are when you guys are friends and the friendship is on the rocks versus you're just two guys who have like a natural rivalry. You know what I mean? Yeah. I also think just maybe it's people. You know, use everyone's fuel for life is different. Like some people, if you're annoyed or angry, you do your best work. Some people, when you're annoyed or angry, you know, you, you can't focus and you do your wor- worst work. You know, I'm sure for Masao, it was true that, you, you know, his, in my opinion, his best matches were against Kawada, who was a guy he did have real tension with. But for a guy like Punk, obviously, his best matches with Colt came when he, uh, they were getting along real well. But also Punk's best matches were not against Colt. No, definitely not. Now, Although the, you you could argue his best matches were against Samoa Joe, which he would say was his best friend. Yes, true. Uh, I don't know if they were best friends when they had the matches, but maybe they were. Um, I um, I will say, you know, Cabana looked better here than Punk did as a wrestler. He did. He, I mean, I don't think it's news to say that Cabana was a more natural athlete than Punk. I don't think mm-hmm. anyone is surprised by that, but it is very noticeable. Yeah. And after the match, we get a segment where Gary Michael Capetta climbs in the ring, his job as Ring of Honor interviewer and newsbreaker in this case. He tells Punk and Colt that he's gotten news direct from Ring of Honor. He says they will wrestle in a rematch at the very next show and that the announcement's going to have be the most important stipulation of their careers. And that stipulation is the winner of the next match will get flown to Ring of Honor. He says they've been both getting flown so far from Chicago but Ring of Honor is a company on a budget. They can't afford to fly both in. So only the winner of the next match will get flown. Um, this actually got a surprising reaction from the crowd because I thought like it's like a who gives a shit stip because Gary didn't make it sound like the other guy wouldn't be able to wrestle in Ring of Honor again, just that they would have to drive, which driving from Chicago to Philly, I'm sure, isn't fun. But 
it's not like, oh my God, like the most important stipulation of your life, you'll have to drive. But Punk gets on the mic and he says that if he wins the rematch and gets the plane tickets, he'll forego the plane tickets so that he and Colt can both drive together. And then Colt, Colt kind of gets starts on the mic and he kind of starts as a face where he goes, you know, you know, talking about what an honor and what a big deal is it is to wrestle on Philly. But then he does a bit of a dick move where he says he hates driving. And if he gets the plane tickets, he's not going to forego them. He's going to fly every time. So he's kind of being a jerk to punk. It's a weird segment. I still do have a soft spot for indie storylines built around wrestlers fighting for transportation money. But it's like it's like in the old um, like battle royals in like the seventies and eighties where guys would would wrestle for like five thousand dollars or something, and <laughs> you know it's you know, it's like it's, it sounds absurd now um, to you know to have like a money prize in a major promotion, but yeah that that's you know it's sort of what it's like and in indie wrestling trans is is the money, and also it, money is the money but you know what I mean, and it's weird it shows you how far indie wrestling has come where. We go in the days now where PWG will fly a bunch of guys in from all over the world, you know, Europe and everywhere. And here we have a stipulate a major stipulation for a match, build as being so important, where two guys from Chicago are going to fight over a plane ticket to Philadelphia. So, I mean, indie wrestling has definitely changed in scope and in budget for some of the major promotions. And well, it's interesting. This is like ROH is the first, you know, it's kind of the first super indie in a way. I mean, I guess you could argue like something like an XPW or something, but this is the first super indie where they're getting guys from all over the country um, and as and the world to come as be regulars in their uh, in their ongoing indie you know storylines. So it's you know so it still feels like more of an indie in some ways than Evolve does. Evolve, you know, like like as for an, for example, because that's Gabe's promotion now. Um, you know, Evolve in some ways is smaller than ROH. You know, even during these years. But it's also like they're not going to do like – they're not going to reference their indiness quite as much by talking yeah. about how guys are getting to shows and you know all that stuff. That's, that's a great way to put it. I would say they just they're – not, they're not shying away from some of the rough edges you know, in a way where – yeah, promotions nowadays, they, I feel like some of the major indies, they want to seem as kind of unique and professional as possible where – you know, I, I think when uh, Gary Michael Capetta says the stipulation, Ring Gabe on commentary just offhandedly says, "You know, yeah, we it's a run a, on a budget." He just says like under his breath, "You know, they didn't shy away from that they were an indie at this point, and that they had the same problems indie wrestling companies have." But the next match is a number one contenders trophy tournament. First round match, that's a mouthful. Easy Money making his Ring of Honor debut, taking on Paul London. And Paul London defeats Easy Money in 7 minutes, 26 seconds, after Paul London hits a leg sweep DDT. Since uh, AJ Styles is cashing in his um, Ring of Honor uh, number one contenders trophy tonight, they have to have a new four-man tournament to crown a new champ. And so this is the first of two of first round matches. Matt, not a long match. What did you think about this? I liked it. Um, you know, it was like like it wasn't anything great, but I thought it was entertaining. Uh, it was funny over that I you know when you like because like you were talking about you hear 
uh, since it's a smaller and less responsive crowd, you hear individuals more. So I heard very early in the match, somebody said to Easy Money, you sucked in ECW, um, which <laughs> I, I don't think he sucked in ECW, but, um, but you know, he wasn't anything special, wasn't there for that long. Um, uh, so on commentary, Gabe is talking about how Easy Money and Chad Collier both immediately walked into this title shot tournament. And it's because of their track records elsewhere. Um, and I don't know how you feel about that, but I um, I think it's good. I think it, it's silly for a company like ROH to make guys work their way up from nothing if they already have reputations. So I, 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 so I like that they can have guys that come in with reps just immediately get into like major uh, angles and stuff and into see, the title hunt. I had a kind of problem with that just because – First of all, this is the second time. You can tell Gabe's really defensive about it because he did the same thing with CM Punk debuting in the number one contender's gauntlet on the last show or two shows ago. And here, the thing I didn't like about it was he's talking about how these guys have big reps and they walk in because, you know, I I like that idea that he lays out, which is they're not going to have to work their way up. But in the case of Punk, he did have to work his way up because – after he debuts in that number one contender's gauntlet, he loses in the very first match. He's the first guy eliminated, and then he's working his way up with Colt Cabana and working Michael Shane again and work in on low on the card and working C.W. Anderson. And then it's not until the Raven feud where he actually really gets a chance to lift off. And here with Easy Money and Chad Collier, he can say about, oh, you know, these two guys, you know, they deserve to get title opportunities right from the start. Chad Collier's not going to get a big follow-up push from this. Easy Money's only going to work just barely a few more shows, and they're gone. So That's a good point. It's like if, if you're going to bring someone in and say you're, you're giving them a push because they earned it elsewhere, then actually give them a push. Don't pretend you're giving them a push. I think that's 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 a good point that I hadn't thought of. Yeah, like you, you have to follow through on it. Like if he, I wouldn't have a problem if he pushed Easy Money and Col- Chad Collier afterwards to even fairly high on the mid-card level. But when they disappear, like Chad Collier would be an on and off person in Ring of Honor for quite a while, but he would never be a heavily pushed figure. And you you have to follow up when you say that, I, I feel like. It's it's not a huge deal in the grand scheme of things, but it's, another, it's one of those things you can tell Gabe's a little touchy about. That makes sense. Um, other things I noticed about the match, I really appreciate how Jeff Gorman... Like you know, learns the names of moves and says them. Like for instance, the money clip is when Easy Money flips from the apron into the ring and hits a big clothesline. Um, and there's also the Easy Driver, which is when you like have a guy almost like who's going for a sunset flip, flip, but then you just drop him down on their head. Um, Easy Money, he did a lot more mat stuff than I expected because you know I I just remember him as like Jason Jet doing the big moves and stuff. But he did like um you know sort of like a Billy Goat's Curse kind of like r- inverted Boston Crab, and then he does uh, picks London up into a pendulum. Yeah. Um. He also. Uh, well, sorry, I missed something. Um. There's there's some good stuff on on the cra- in, you know in the on the floor. Uh, London does a forward flip somersault onto Jet in the aisle, um, stepping off the ring post, which is sort of he did that sort of in um. You know, in a bunch of other matches against Michael Shane, but it's always impressive when he does that. 
it's basically the ladder run spot without the ladder. It's almost like he feels like he has to give that every time now in some form. But it looked really cool in this match. It did. I will yeah. Say. He looks really, looks and really I cool. love you can hear one individual girl like let out a high pitched scream when he's about to do it. Like she's she's scared for Paul. She's the please. She's the please don't die all to herself. Um, she, she, yeah. Uh, so at one point, London does an Enzigiri and money. Like he does this weird, like wobbly, comical, delayed sell onto the ground <laughs> that Gabe just finds completely insane. Like he just cracks up at it. Yeah, he goes like he's like incredulous at like what the hell was that, and he just starts laughing. Yeah. Um, I liked uh, like uh, there's a move when London went for a spin kick and uh, money catched him, with, caught him with a power bomb for two. Then he uh, he hits kind of a he he grabs his leg hook DDT. London does and gets the three. Um, so the story I'd say of the match was that money kept reversing everything London was trying and I thought it looked pretty good. Um, there was this, I, like, it wasn't much of a match, you know, it was short, but I thought it was entertaining. They kept it, they kept it moving. The, the crowd liked it. Uh, there were, the moves looked good. I really don't have any real complaints about it. It was just short and, uh, you know, not very noteworthy, but I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I I would agree. I, it's another match if I had to give a rating. I would say it was you know on my word rating scale, I would say average ish. But that's this match is just like you said because it's more slight. It just didn't have time. But I enjoyed watching it for what it was. Uh, I I would say this match had the problem of it had to serve a couple masters because it was probably short to give London a chance not to just kill himself working a long match. You know, Danielson will go on to wrestle a long match, but maybe they felt like London shouldn't have to also wrestle a 15, 20-minute match when he's going to wrestle later in the night. But at the same time, they still also, in the body of that seven minutes, had to give um, Easy Money some chances to look good because it's his, it's his debut. So it almost felt like they just were more had just to focus on, all right, short match, give Money a chance to do some stuff. But what he did was, in, was I thought, it was enjoyable I also felt bad for Easy Money watching this because I realized he, he's in kind of a weird anti-sweet spot where he's six foot two. At least he's billed as six foot two, and he's one of those guys that you you notice he looks he that he's actually fairly big when he's working the indies. That maybe you didn't notice if you were watching him in WCW or something. And it feels like he's in this bad spot where he's not using modern comparisons. He's not thick in the way of of a Brian Cage or Keith Lee, and he's not tall like a Donovan Dijak. And those are all wrestlers where they can do flying moves, and they get big reactions because it's impressive that people in their size and body types can do any kind of flying at all. And Easy Money is doing some pretty cool athletic stuff, but he's in that middle spot where he, it's he's, he's just big enough that it's probably a lot harder for him to do those things, but yet he's not going to get the huge credit that uh, guys a little bit bigger than him will will get for doing things like that. So I felt kind of bad watching him. And for those who don't know Easy Money, he worked in the dying days of ECW. He worked as Jason Jett in the dying days of uh, WCW. In the, fact, the dyingest days, like the last, yeah. like the last like three weeks. I don't know if this is true, but I but reading his Wikipedia, it said he has the distinction of being the only wrestler who wrestled on the last ECW show ever, the non-WWE ECW, and the final WCW show ever. So that's a weird trivia bit that uh, Easy Money will always get to have in the wrestling trivial pursuit game. 
Um, y- yeah, uh, just a s- slight match, but solid for what it was. Uh, both guys are athletic. And I don't have much more to say about this match, actually. Uh, you- I, 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 uh, it definitely made me want to see more easy money, which I think yeah. is a good thing. Definitely. And just give me money in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one contenders, trophy tournament, first round match. The other one, in, it was just a four-man tournament. The other match, Brian Danielson taking on and defeating Chad Collier, also making his Ring of Honor debut. And Danielson wins here via pinfall in 19 minutes, 39 seconds, with a dragon suplex. Um, I'm going to say I found this match a bit disappointing. I felt it was... I really like Matt Work. I love, obviously, Brian Danielson's one of my favorite wrestlers. I felt like this was a little dry, particularly Chad Collier. Um, I felt like even when they got to the uh, higher impact stuff at the end, it still felt like I was watching the first 20 minutes of a 30-minute match or a 40-minute match rather than a match that ramped up and was built for 20 I think it's impressive that Danielson went out there and wrestled nearly 20 minutes when he was going to wrestle another long match later in the night. London gets the opportunity to only have to wrestle seven minutes. And Danielson here, it's not he's not exerting himself as much because most of this match is on the mat, but he's still wrestling for almost 20 minutes, and he's going to go out again and do another long match. So good on him. Uh, there is a story to this match where about halfway through, Cole... Chad Collier starts working on Danielson's knee, and Danielson does a good job of selling it, but I just, there's something about this match that didn't hook me. I liked, uh, there was a sequence where they reversed full Nelsons and found different ways to reverse them. I liked that, but I especially like my early Danielson, where he's this real kind of rough, gritty guy on the mat and growling and being kind of hard to guys and really cranking on holds. I wish I could have gotten a bit more of that in this match. We might get a little bit more of that in another match tonight, but we uh, I don't think we really got it here. Yeah, I thought this match was boring as hell. Like, um, all the wrestling looked fine. Um, you know, it was uh, the actual execution of the moves. Um, you know, um, I think the early storyline of the match was just that Collier could match Danielson on the mat, and that was kind of, he's the first guy that Danielson has wrestled that really could do that, match him in the technical wrestling. Although, in the AJ match, they sort of went that way, too. Um, but that, that was a big thing. Um, I, uh, but I, some of the most entertaining stuff was from the announcers, as it often is. I think there, <laughs> there was a time when, um, you know, uh, Dragon hit, like, a reverse kick to break a, to break a, a hold, that a leg hold that, that uh, Collier had on him, and Gorman was like, I hope there's a physical therapist around, and Gabe was like, it's ROH, of course there's a physical therapist, and there's a masseuse, too. Um, do, do you do you think Gabe was being, like, tongue-in-cheek there or not? Because he was just talking about, after that last match, you know, oh, ROH is on a budget, and, you know, that's why these guys are fighting over a plane ticket, and then Gabe really sounded defensive, but almost, like, cartoonishly, like, yeah, they have first-class accommodations, there's a masseuse, there's a physical therapist, like, oh, really? <laughs> Like, what the hell? Yeah, I I don't know if he was... It's it's impossible to tell if he was, like, joking, being ironic, or if he, like, being sarcastic, or if he was actually, like, no, of course, we have a a masseuse, we're top-notch. Like, I... It's (laughs) really hard to tell. So if any... If 
any former ROH wrestler can say whether or not there was a masseuse or if Gabe was just mocking the idea that there might be a masseuse or if or a physical <laughs> therapist. It's well, we might never know, honestly. Um, but there, you know, like you said, the full Nelson thing. Um, I like Collier kept going for the clover leaf, and uh, and uh, you know, Dragon kept reversing it. He reversed into a roll up. Then they do like you know their forearm chop exchange, which seems to be obligatory. And then, but then Collier broke it by just hitting a pop up power bomb, which I thought was cool. And then he locked on the clover leaf, and Danielson got to the ropes. Um, but then I, th- you know, when Dragon hit the Dragon suplex for three, it just felt very sudden. Um, just felt non impactful, and the crowd was pretty much dead for all of it, which is rare, you know, for a Dragon match uh, in ROH so far. Um, to and you know, even Gabe on commentary was like, "Well, you know, a lot of the people in the crowd just want are here for blood. It's a different crowd." Um, it's possible that the whole different crowd thing that Dave was talking about was just, you know, Gabe's spin, um, yeah. more than anything, because it was a much deader crowd than normal. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I love Brian Danielson. I've loved his stuff. I, I, feel, I still think he looked good here, but I thought this match was really boring. And it, it's funny. I think maybe the spot I liked the most might have not even been intentional. I'm not sure. I, uh, at one point, um... Collier has Danielson in an arm bar and Danielson tries to do a spot he's done before in Ring of Honor where he basically deadlifts the guy while he's stuck in the arm bar with just like a one arm deadlift and he can't really do it here. He tries because Collier's too heavy but as someone who watches every show I thought that was like a fun maybe unintentional callback to when he did it to I think Chris Devine at Unscripted. I just like that idea of you know he's trying to do this thing he could do before but Collier's so thick and you know muscular and heavier that he can't do the one-arm deadlift I, I don't know if that was intentional or not and this was one of those matches i think what you brought up was in, made was something i i was thinking about too where this was a match where i was wondering was the crowd different or just smaller and quieter because it feels like at the start of the match they were quiet but kind of more like it felt like to me maybe they were thinking okay this is going to be another like great Danielson match that builds up. And by the end, it was almost like they had lost a few extra people. He was still getting some sporadic cheers for the big spots, but it almost felt like the crowd was disappointed too. Maybe. And, but again, maybe that's me reading too much into the crowd. And it was more what Dave was saying, which is a different kind of crowd, but either way, this match didn't deserve a great reaction. Um, but it, announce- but it would have gotten a better reaction, I think, at, on other shows. Yeah, it, I think so, too. Like, if it was even from the Boston crowd from the last show, where, you know, Dave said some of the crowd walked out on that match, that match against Doug Williams and Danielson that went half an hour got a better reaction than this match did. Oh, by a lot. And one other comment on the commentary I liked is, one thing I love about Gabe on commentary is he is so defensive about some things. And, you know, people have a reason sometimes to be defensive, but he does not hide it well. And I love in sometimes in matches, he will just randomly bring up things that are bothering him about the people on the internet. And in this match, he starts referencing all the match of the year candidates Danielson has had. And then he just like, you can tell he gets sidetracked. He goes, you know, for people that are saying, I use the term match of the year contender too often, check the message boards and websites to see everybody calling these match of the year contenders. I love that just in the middle of like talking, he, he just couldn't hold that in. Like he had to acknowledge like that people are complaining about him calling too many matches, match of the year contenders. Yeah. 
So, yeah, this is probably one of the more disappointing Danielson matches you'll see in Ring of Honor in 2002, which I think has been an, a really great year that still holds up. But it was probably either this or the Spanky tore the ass in his pants match that feel like the worst matches we've seen from him. And uh, not probably count, not due not to count, his fault. Not counting like a squash match he has against Biohazard and stuff like that. Obviously. Yeah. The, the matches where he's had an honest chance to have a match. And in both these matches, you could argue it's not his fault, but still disappointing. I would argue it's just, it's as much his fault in this match as it could be. Like it's, I'm not, you know, it's both of the wrestlers faults, but yeah, 50, 50, I guess. Yeah. They, I mean, they, he had a, just as much of a chance. Like, there was nothing handicapping him here. I guess. Cause I'm such a Brian Daniel fan that, uh, I always, when he has a rare match that isn't good, I almost feel like I have to search I, that. I, it's so he's so good so often he's so consistent that it's hard for me to blame him even when maybe he does deserve blame like it's like how could this be that it wasn't good and i don't think chad collier's a bad wrestler either so as we've but, established brian daniel is great at infrastructure <laughs> next we get a match that couldn't be more different than the last match because we have our scramble match for the night and it's the SAT of Joel and Jose Ma- Joel and Jose Maximo defeating the Hit Squad of Mafia and Monster Mac, and of Jay- they're beating Jay Briscoe and the Amazing Red, and they're beating Special K of Derange and Joy Matthews. It was one fall to a finish. The SAT won in 23 minutes 25 seconds when they made both members of Special K submit at the same time to the Human Taffy Machine. Um, let's see. Did you start the last match or did no, I, you, I just, no, you, you did. Okay. So, all right, Matt, then you get the, you get the privilege of talking about a nearly 25 minute scramble match. Well, I did write down a lot of stuff for it. So I guess I'm prepared. Um, the, I, so it started out differently than most scrambles in the sense that like they did a lot of character work early on and like, you know, like working the crowd and I actually liked it for a while. And then it just kept going and going and going and going, and they kept doing it. There's a lot of repetitiveness, and I ended up not really liking it at the end. It was one of my least favorite scramble matches. I just thought it went on forever. But uh, the early part, they, they, they have Jose and Jay start doing their wrestling, counter-wrestling. And Jose's is not as good as what you'd expect from guys in <laughs> ROH. Um, but Jay looks good. Um, so they, they do that until they both are like, okay, let's high-five and go to tag. So Monster Mac and Joey Matthews comes in, and Joey is, like, doing his heel stuff. And I think Joey Matthews, at this point, doing his heel stuff in ROH, it's one of the most underrated aspects of early ROH. Like, you never hear anyone talk about it, but I think he's really good and really entertaining and really gets over doing it. Um, Definitely. Yeah, Special K would not have been as successful I think without Joey Matthews this early, and I don't, I didn't remember that at all. I didn't remember you, how crucial he was. If you watch Joey Matthews here, you can see why he would have been a good choice to be a road agent in like a WWE, which he was. You know, he just seems smart. You know, he's doing things that no one else is doing. Right, he seems like a pro. Yeah, which you know, these other guys, you know, some of them are really good. Jay Briscoe obviously ends up being an awesome wrestler throughout his career, but he was green as shit, and um, Joey was like the pro here. But also, Deranged showed a lot of personality compared to everyone else also. And that, you know, that was Joey's partner. Um, you know, Ma- Mafia tries to bully Deranged by, uh, into shaking his hand, but Deranged flips him off. And then, like, Ma- uh, Mafia goes after him, but Joey pulls him to safety. I like that. 
Um, and then uh, the crowd kind of begged Red uh, Mafia to tag in Red to go off against Joel. They were really excited for this Red versus SAT showdown. I don't know why. They've seen it a bunch of times. It was never that great. But um, but we get it, and it's sloppy. They trade kicks. I thought Red looked kind of off in this match, uh, even compared to some of the other times. He's been a little bit sloppy. I thought I didn't think he was very impressive here at all. Um, but uh, Angel Ducks... And Dixie, at one point, they attack Trinity and... Uh, sorry, not Trinity. Um, no, it was tr- Trinity. No. Oh, yeah, it was Trinity. And uh, yeah, and Dixie hits her with a crutch. Um, so more violence against uh, women there. Just that uh, it was the, the obligatory of violence against women. Um, and Angel Dust literally dragged Trinity all the way to the back. Like, literally dragged her. So, And it was good. the slowest drag you've ever seen. Like, yeah. I don't know if he was being careful or if he just was too weak to drag her, but it was so slow that he dro- dragged her to the back. Uh, was it Trinity or was it Ariel? No, it was Trinity because she was came to the show with Divine Storm, and the whole gimmick with Trinity is... She is like looking out and trying to stop interference for not just Divine Storm, but their friends, the SAT. I guess I so, missed that on commentary because I, I wrote Trinity, but I was like, that doesn't make sense now that I think back. But no, it's Trinity. Okay. Um, so um, the, at this point, once once uh, Trinity gets dragged to the back, the match finally gets going. It's about ten minutes in, and the crowd is kind of dead after all the shenanigans. I thought, but it was so it was more grounded than a lot of the other versions, and the crowd sort of comes alive for a forearm exchange between Jay and Mafia, and the other guys keep trying to interrupt it, but then they fight them off and go back to it, and by then the crowd's really into it. So I think you mentioned that was probably like the hottest spot of the match where they just kept clubbering each other, and everyone tries to break to break it up, and they just keep going back to clubbering clubbering each other. Yeah, that was, yeah, one of the more dynamic spots of the match. Um, there's a, a spot where um, where uh, a Mafia powerbombed Red onto Jay, who's in the Tree of Woe. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, at one point, Red superplexes deranged to the outside onto all the other participants in the match. That got a pretty big pop. Um, Mafia does a tope onto a bunch of guys, but he lands chest first on the guardrail. And then the guardrail like slowly toppled, toppled over. That looked really painful. Then there was uh, a spot where uh, Jose, Deranged, uh, and Joel all miss sentons. Then Red misses a frog splash. Then Joey misses a second rope elbow, which that's kind of the gimmick. Like they all did these big spots, and Joey just did a little like second rope Jerry Lawler elbow. Um, Monster Mac lands a splash on, I guess it was more of a Steve Austin style elbow. Um, Monster Mac, finally he lands a spot on Joey. So the idea is like everyone missed a spot until Monster Mac landed a splash. And Gorman was like, this was a commentary about the human condition. <laughs> I love Jeff Gorman. I'm just going to say. I, I'm fully on the Jeff Gorman train. I think you said this is his last show, right? Um, unless he does like some random one, we're back to uh, Doug Gentry and Gabe on the next show. So it's either his last or his second to last show, and uh, I uh, I will miss him. He was good, and I have not. And you know that I do not go easy on early ROH commentary. Commentary. No. So he was he was good, a charming guy. Um, uh, Jay plants to range with a power bomb. And the starting to show glimpses, I would say, of grown up Jay there. I've, because, like, he's like, you know, the hard slamming power bomb. Like, you definitely, 
and Gabe even mentions this on commentary, you really did see uh, Jay grow up this year. Like, he seems a world away from the Jay on the first show. He's just, he's, he's uh, less pimply. He's, uh, he just has more presence. He's obviously not, not, you know, doesn't have the character down all the way. But his wrestling has definitely evolved, even in these, uh, you know, whatever, the 10 months since the first ROH show. Um, so Jay goes for the Jay Driller on Derange, but Mafia spears them both, which I thought was cool. Then Red actually hits an F5 on Joel. The crowd really liked that. Um, does a Red Star press for two. Um, pile dri- which I thought that was going to be the finish, but just kept going. Um, pile Driver by Joel. Then he holds on for four more Pile Drivers, a Face Buster, a Swinging Neck Breaker, and that was not the finish. You know, and I don't care what kind of match it is. If you hit four pile drivers in a row, then a bunch of other moves, that should be the finish, I think. Um, but they just kept going. Um, frog slash, frog splash, headbutt. Um, but Joey breaks it up. Uh, Joel hits four power bombs, a fire starter on deranged. Then they do the taffy machine on Special K, and they get the tap out. So the taffy machine name, uh, the greatest contribution that uh, Donnie B has made to pro wrestling. It um, really is. It is. Um, and it just, I, you know, there was some fun stuff, but it just, it was too long, it was too excessive, and it was very sloppy. Uh, like I mentioned, I think what I thought were all the decent moments, um, and maybe maybe it doesn't sound that bad, but it just like the pacing was just like, ugh, like just enough already. Well, to to help sell your point, I mean, we have to remind people, Matt just rattled off a bunch of interesting sounding moments, but that was over a near, uh, over 23 minute match. So you didn't see all those condensed in a 10 minute match. That was, there, there was a lot of stuff between those moments. Um, yeah, the, be- the best of- part for me was like the first few minutes with Joey Matthews and Duranes doing their character work. See, I was the opposite where... What 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 I found that I like with scrambles from rewatching these shows is I either want just a ton of really choreographed, intricate, like multi-man spots, or I want something that's just fast, like bam, 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 quick, 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 like where you never have a moment to think. And I felt like there was a bunch of moments to think in this match, but yet at first I was really going to dislike this match, even though I like some of the character stuff. I just it didn't have the pace I liked. But I felt like as the match went on, there was enough, they did enough things, like all the things you listed, that I didn't love this match, but I was like, yeah, that was average to a bit above average. Like, I still like this better than a lot of the earlier scrambles. Even though it wasn't worth 23 minutes, I felt like they just did enough things, like all the things you listed, enough memorable things. But... This is a match where it's almost hard to review as a whole because it's so big and it's so spotty where you almost have to go wrestler by wrestler. And again, you've gone gone over a lot of it. I still think the SAT looks spotty for a team that's supposed to be like the stars of this group along with Red. Um, I don't know if I thought if Red looked as quite as bad as you thought. But he, just, he, he just looked worse than usual, I thought. And he, he I felt he faded into the background on this match too, which again, he's supposed to be one of the big stars of this group of guys. This wasn't his best night. Um, he didn't do the infrared, which means he didn't murder anyone on this show, so that's an automatic positive to me. Um, the F5 was cool. Yeah, the F5. I don't know why he decided to do the F5, maybe just because, you know, Brock was big and new then, but yeah, that that got another big pop. The, the, I think it's pretty ironic that you could argue in 
this scramble match, you know, scramble matches are known for the crazy high flying, all that stuff. The two two of the biggest pops of a 23-minute crazy scramble match were Red doing an F5 and, like you mentioned before, Jay Briscoe doing a forearm brawl with a hit squad member. Like, two of the most grounded slams and strikes moves were the things that got the huge pop. But they were both cool. Um, we already talked about Joey Matthews. You mentioned deranged. I got to give you credit. On the last show... I said Joey Matthews was the only guy in the scramble madness scramble that had personality. And you told me, oh, you know, well, Deranged had a lot too. And I just didn't notice it. I was completely wrong. You were completely right. Because here Deranged just is overflowing with personality, like you said. He is like playing really well, the comical kind of stoogy guy. He's selling for everybody, bumping for everybody. I felt bad almost where... He's clearly just cannon fodder in Special K, and he's showing so much ass for everybody. Yet, he was one of the highlights of the match, and he took the two clear biggest ouchy-looking bumps, other than maybe that guardrail land on the tope from Mafia. Because not only does he take the big superplex from Red to the floor on top of everybody else, but there's a moment later where Jay Briscoe has him in position for a J-driller, and then he gets... Deranged gets speared when he's upside down with his arms held behind his back, you know, for the J-Driller. And I felt like that's a pretty scary-looking spot because you cannot defend or brace yourself at all. You know, you're taking a spear upside down with your arms pinned behind your back. And I don't know how hard he hit. It looked like it could have hurt that. I don't know if it did hurt him bad. But I felt, again, I felt bad. He, he, he takes such good spots such good bumps. He's um, he he's so much personality, and then he's one of the guys taking the fall. I felt bad for Deranged here. Yeah, and you know he gets he's in ROH for a long time, but he never really does much after Special K and like Lacey's Angels and stuff. And he did have more personality than a lot of those guys, so I'm actually kind of surprised that he didn't have more of a career. Like obviously he's very skinny, um, so mm-hmm. I guess that's a big part of it, but. You know, I'm surprised he, you know, and I guess he wasn't quite as dynamic as, like, a Jack Evans, who would be a contemporary of these guys, but still. I do agree with you, this this scramble was better if you're, if you're going all the way back to the beginning of ROH and counting those, like, tumble fests involving, like, Brian XL and all that stuff. I agree with you, um... This, this was definitely better than that. <laughs> but it's scary in the sense of, it's probably a sign of where we're headed, where after the Scramble Madness match was so good... I feel like they're just trying to top that by going longer and adding more guys because even on this show, one of the things Gabe brings up once or twice is, you know, at the one-year anniversary show in New York, you're going to see the biggest scramble ever. And it's just this idea of we're going to add more guys and it's going to be longer and more spots. And that doesn't always translate to a better match. And doesn't, matches always, like, doesn't always translate to a better match, you say. Hmm, have to stay tuned <laughs> on that one. Yeah, it, it's just... Even this match, you know, it didn't have to be 23 minutes long. and But all those highlight spots did make it enjoyable to me. I, I, I did really like that uh, Mafia, when he's still pretty fat, doing the big tope. Um, Although he's very clearly slimmed down a lot over the course of the year. Yeah, he's already lost some weight. I think he'll lose some more. And not just lost weight, but like gotten jacked in the shoulder area. Yeah, he he's going to the gym at this point, which is interesting. While he's still, you know, it's still 
well before he gets a singles push, but he's still working hard even now just as part of the hit squad. Uh, there, there was enough stuff in here I liked to be a little bit above average to me, but still not nearly as good as the other scramble match. Just don't make them so long. You don't, you don't have to go, you know, these scramble matches should be your greatest hits. It should be take all these cool spots you can think of and then do nothing but them. Don't worry about the transitions. Just it's a scramble. Do all the best hits you have. Uh, The other thing I'll mention is like you said, I can't believe we're 11 for 11 on man-on-woman violence. Like, every show so far, as if they have a quota, every single Ring of Honor show so far, 11 for 11, man-on-woman violence. I just hope that we're cognizant enough to notice whenever we get to the first show that doesn't have it. I hope so. I'm worried I'm going to miss that because every time it happens, I forget the streak until I see the man-on-woman violence happening. Yep. Like like this show, I didn't even think to be looking out for it. And then I was like, oh, crap. Like, Trinity is getting beaten down and dragged to the back by a guy. You know? And then you just remember, oh, yeah, it's yet again another show that has this. They, they've never missed one yet. Yeah, I will also say this. Besides just the violence aspect of it, it's these shows really remind you just how bad the portrayal of women in wrestling in general has been always been up until you know may, maybe very recently like the past like three or four years because you know roh is considered like you know the serious wrestling you know progressive promotion and when women are treated no differently than they're treated in you know wwf from like the late 90s like maybe they're not wrestling maybe they're not wearing like you know skimpy dresses and like ridiculously large heels but they are just like they are just shown to be like nothing much, you know, they're just there. They're eye candy for the most part. Maybe they're eye, they're eye candy that can do a hurricane Rana. And then, you know, they have Alexis Lurie is pushed as like the big star. She hasn't gotten to show anything as far as wrestling skill. Um, so, you know, so the, the use of women in early ROH is, I don't know, it's, it's just weird. Like they're, you know, it's, it's just weird. I don't, I don't know how else to describe it. They're there to titillate in three-minute matches or be seconds for male wrestlers. Like, that's right. it. Right. With, and basically have no personality. Mm-hmm. It's just... Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, quite frankly, I don't think Ring of Honor ever got women. Like, they never maybe don't get as disgusting with some of the commentary as they do in year one in the future. But... They, you know, they were never the ones to spotlight women's wrestling or realize that the kind of role that could play in helping, you know, make a good product. They, right. they didn't, they didn't, you know, Dave Prezak had to go on to do that. And, right. and even there WWE, were couple, there were a couple times once Shimmer started that they had a couple of pretty good women's matches, but that was about it. Mm-hmm. And even then, I feel like that was in the context often of. Prezak bringing in, you know, guy, uh, you know, the Schwimmer, the sh- not the David Schwimmer division. That's that's an also very entertaining division David in Schwimmer the 90s. versus David Schwimmer. <laughs> but, you no, know, it would be like Schwimmer spotlight matches, you know. So even then, I would give a lot of that credit to to, Gay, to uh, Dave Prezak and not Ring of Honor as a whole and that brain trust. But after this match, another thing I won't give Ring of Honor much credit for is doing the millionth in a row Slugger segment where Slugger comes from the craft of the match, he attacks the referee, he walks back into the audience. They've done the same segment 
for God knows how many shows, for the love of God, changing up. Even if I have to watch Slugger wrestle, that's better than watching this segment again. Please, please just quit doing this segment. Yeah, like, did they think that there was this, like, deep mystery that everyone was fascinated by? Like, what is he going to do? Like, it just, it was, it's just absurd. And it's so much like the 911 thing. Like, I, I remember on one past show, Dave said that some people live were chanting 911 during one of his matches, which was, you know, the old big ECW tall wrestler who would just come out and choke slam people, and that was his entire shtick. I mean, it, it does it feels like a real bad ripoff of that, except it's not even that entertaining. And nine one one was like a character, they said who he was, you know, crowd was into him. This is like, oh, they they treat this as a mystery. And <laughs> who like who could care? Yeah, like who it's almost like we're supposed to wonder whose sire is he on or what's his motives, but he's not doing anything that really invites like scr- burning brain cells to think about. He's walking in the ring and randomly beating up referees and scrubs and then walking back, you know, like whose side is he on? It doesn't look like he's on anybody's side. He just walks in and beats up people that don't matter. It, okay. It's just after that, we get uh, highlights from the high impact TV tapings, the matches we talked about earlier and then we get Divine Storm and uh, of Chris Divine and Quiet Storm defeating Jeff Starr and Shockwave, making their debut in three minutes forty seconds. When Quiet Storm pins Shockwave after hitting the Storm Cradle Driver, this is this is I'm going to have to repeat a little mini rant I did on an earlier show, which is these kinds of matches are so pointless because you're you're inviting new guys in. And you're giving them barely any time. This is a tag match that only goes 3 minutes 40 seconds, which means each guy has less than 2 minutes if you're going to divide the time equally to make an impression. And because they're not winning and you have to make the other team look good, they're not even getting a lot of time to do a ton of offense. They get to do a few spots each and that's it. Like I don't get what purpose these matches serve. It, It doesn't make the show better to have this match. It doesn't put over Divine Storm because it, these guys don't come off, their opponents don't come off as anything special. Um, it, it doesn't give you as a promoter a chance to see what Shockwave and Jeff Star are capable of. Like there's, it's if you pay these guys any money at all, it's a waste. And if they're free, they wasted gas because they didn't get another chance from this match. Both these guys, I think, are still wrestling, but they're just not wrestling. They never got another match in Ring of Honor. Um, I, I just don't get, if you're going to invite wrestlers to have a tryout match in your promotion and it's going to be two minutes or three minutes or four minutes, don't even bother. You're not going to learn anything about them and it's not going to add to your show. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I had something to add there. Um, yeah, this is just a squash match. Um, the most interesting part, I guess was Gabe again making fun of Victoria for um, when uh, when uh, Quiet Storm did the Widow's Peak. Yeah. And he's like, oh, Victoria's tried to steal it if she wants to. It's like, poor Victoria. What, is, what did she ever do to anybody? Doing someone's move. And then he wins with the Storm Cradle Driver for three. I, I don't have anything to say about the match. I uh, got no impression of Jeff Starr or Shockwave. Um, I guess he just wanted to... I don't know if... You know, I always wonder if like some of these guys like are being done a favor because they're getting booked. Um, like, did these guys have some association with Rudy Gonzalez? I don't know. He wasn't there. There was no none of the Texas Wrestling Academy guys 
like the the younger ones or less established ones were there no rudy so i didn't think so um so yeah i don't know what the point of these guys being there was I don't think they were Rudy Boy guys because at one point Gabe sells them as one of the best tag teams in the New York area. Oh, okay. So, so they were probably they they yeah. didn't have to drive that far. Yeah, but so they were probably just like maybe cheap. I don't know. Yeah, it, but they it's and we can add the, these guys to the list we never made of guys Gabe says will be back in Ring of Honor or sees bright futures for because I believe he does say something about how the, we'll see Jeff Starr and uh, Shockwave back in Ring of Honor and we never do. Maybe they had their time cut because like the, uh, the scramble match went long. You know who knows. Yeah, I mean if that's the case, you know I could I guess I can understand a little bit more than if the intention was to give these guys more. But I even kind of doubt that because then you probably should have invited these guys back then right. if, if if all they ever got was a three-and-a-half-minute match and it was meant to be more. You probably should have given them a second chance. They kind of they, they, Well, they didn't kind of. They definitely got a raw deal here. Yeah, they, they, and they, didn't, they didn't do anything that looked bad or anything. They just no. didn't have a chance to do anything. There's literally not enough of this match doesn't have enough to it to judge in any way. It's it just it's the rice cake of wrestling. It, it, it just existed and then stopped existing maybe they meant maybe they were planning on having quiet storm wrestle matt thompson and tony mama luke but matt thompson already retired <laughs> matt thompson please contact us i miss you hashtag i've seen you hashtag, hashtag matt tweet matt hashtag mattitude but uh after the hashtag match dv thrombozos <laughs> i love you matt and i love Aww. my deep vein thrombozos but after the match, we get one of the most truly cringeworthy segments, I think, of the first year of Ring of Honor. And think of what that covers. This is Ring of Honor. Had, Gabe has kind of loved occasionally doing his work shoot angles. This is, I feel like, the first one ever. C.D.W. Anderson comes in the ring at the end of the match. I, know, I don't know if that was a, uh, a, a slip, but you called him C.D.W. Anderson. C.D.W. Anderson. Uh, well, he, he does look the part here. Um, C.W. comes in, and he beats down Jeff Starr and Shockwave after the match. Who does he think so, he is, Slugger? <laughs> you ain't no Slugger. But C.W., for those who haven't listened to all the episodes, and shame on you, he appeared on one Ring of Honor show. I believe it was him and Elax versus Joey Matthews and Christian York, and his team lost. And I guess the idea was CW was going to have a feud with York and Matthews. And what was reported in the Observer at the time was Ring of Honor got mad at CW because CW apparently already had zero one bookings, which other Ring of Honor guys d- did. But apparently CW didn't tell them that he was already booked on the date of the next Ring of Honor show for zero one, like he he knew that in advance, but didn't tell Ring of Honor. So Ring of Honor got pissed. He never had another booking until now. And CW comes in here, beats down Jeff Starr and Shockwave, and Gabe immediately tries to sell it like a shoot. He says, "Production note to Doug Gentry: Edit tape right before CW hits the ring. Edit tape before CW hits the ring. Edit this off." And the fact that we hear that maybe the shoot angle he's trying to promote actually is that Doug Gentry is a bad production worker who avoids direct editing instructions. I don't know because, again, it's just such a dorky thing like, you know, edit this off, edit this off. And um, so after CW does the beatdown, 
Gary Michael Capetta runs in the ring with a live mic seconds later because, you know, that's what it would happen in a shoot situation when someone unannounced runs in the ring and attacks people. You would send Gary Michael Capetta out with a live mic seconds later. That's totally a shoot situation. Um, Gary asks CW what he's doing here. CW says he's back in Philly, back in Ring of Honor, and he might even be joining the Prophecy. Gary reminds CW that he was fired from Ring of Honor, which prompts CW to call it a shitty indie, which then why you be- why do you want to come back then? He calls Gabe Sapolsky an internet mark who is now booking the promotion and says that Gabe was kicking, kissing, certainly not kicking, he was kissing CW's ass during the ECW days back when Gabe was selling programs. CW says that Gabe is a Paul Heyman wannabe and that he's trying to pattern himself after someone who ran the greatest wrestling promotion into the ground. That's also, kind of a, but, all, but also ran the greatest wrestling promotion. There's that. Yeah, like like unless I wrote unless um, CW is like jonesing for the early pre Paul Heyman ECW days where it was like Jimmy Snuka main eventing. Like it's kind of a weird thing to say. Oh, he ran EC- the greatest promotion ever into the ground. Heyman, when Heyman really tarnished the legacy that Eddie Gilbert created in ECW. <laughs> Like, yes, Paul Heyman ran into the ground, but he also built it and hired you. So it's like, how dare Paul Heyman screw up Paul Heyman? Like, he, it's the same guy who did all of it. Yeah. Um, CW wants Gabe to bring his, quote, little Jewish ass, unquote, out there and tell him to face face to say to his face all the things he's been saying on the Internet. He pulls out the hacky, you've never taken a bump argument. Then some fan gets on, riles him up in the crowd, and CW pulls out another lane like "your mom sucks dick" comment for razzing him. Um, Anderson talks about how he chose zero one over Ring of Honor to make an international name for himself. All during the segment, the camera keeps cutting to Rob Feinstein, who's standing near the curtain, looking uncomfortable. CW keeps you know talking to Rob like you know get Gabe to come out here. CW says he's back on the show. He's back on here. He's back here in Ring of Honor. The show Philly, what all he's all about. And about three seconds after he says that, he says he quits. He's so here. yeah, he's back and he quits. But then he wants to be back. And, and it, it, <laughs> not only is the timing stupid, but again, the whole conceit of this of this angle is that he's fired from the company and not supposed to be there, and he's coming in to say that he quits you're fired. Like you you don't need to say that you quit. Um, so at this point, Gabe does not come out, but the hit squad and Joey Matthews do come out. And this goes to what I was saying before about the hit squad being always one of those faces of ROH where you need someone to come out and represent the company. They always seem to pick the hit squad. Well, so it's interesting. Like they, they, it's like, I wonder if they intentionally picked Matthews because they were like, this will make it seem the most like a shoot because you're supposed to be on drugs. But yeah, and also like really, you know, sober and serious here. I think it part of it's also with the segments tonight. They're also trying to make it. They're setting up a future Hit Squad special K match and feud. So maybe that maybe that was also a mind of like if we send the Hit Squad and Joey Matthews out together when they're supposed to not like each other, everyone's going to know. You know, this is a shoot. You know, these brother. guys aren't. <laughs> this is a shoot, brother. You can't have a shoot the without the, you can't have a shoot without the word brother. Brother. Um. It just, this was, and then uh, the segment ends there with um, Matthews and the hit squad trying to talk CW down. CW can't be calmed down. He walks to the back where Gabe is waiting right in the back. He gets into a crazy screaming argument, pull apart with Gabe. CW does. Do I dare Uh, dare try to do an impression about this? 
Uh, Gabe does his legendary high-pitched, frightening screams. I Matt, guess that, I guess that's a no. Matt, can you try doing this? You have to do it now. You try to do it relatively quietly, but so it doesn't pierce everyone's ears. But what the fuck? What the fuck are you doing? What the (laughs) fuck? You get the you're fucking done. You're fucking done. What the fuck? That's right. Pretty much. I I didn't shriek quite as much as he did. Yeah, it's a little more high pitched, like Gabe is. Yeah. But Gabe, I've heard other people do the impress. Like his his screams are legendary. Other wrestlers have joked about his tantrums, and I think the funniest thing that ends the segment is as we see get, get Gabe get pulled away into another dressing room. We see one of like the Atlas or whatever security guys who's just been standing backstage during this supposed shoot segment the whole time, not even leaving the backstage area, just relaxing, not doing anything, not breaking up a shoot segment, not being one of the guys that pulled apart Gabe and CW. He was just standing there. And this segment, in my mind, was terrible. You had the weird Jew line. You had just the fact that it's a word, it's a dumb word shoot. Like the weird no Jew one... line was my favorite nine hundred number back when I was a kid. I used to get into so much trouble for calling it. <laughs> Matt, <laughs> the phone bill is sky high again. Damn weird. We've been calling the weird Jew. Why can't you call porn like everybody else? <laughs> but just this was such a dumb work shoot angle, and even if it was a good work shoot angle, quote unquote, it's putting over C W Anderson. I, I just. Why? Yeah, I, I, I don't. That's that. That's my biggest thing. It's like you're gonna like you want this like deep controversy because you expect that everyone's gonna care so much about C W Anderson. And oh, poor C W Anderson. I feel bad now. And it, I, I'll note this is something that I think Dave Meltzer got worked on because Dave writes in the Observer they did a weird angle with C W Anderson on the show. It's weird because at this point there are no plans to use Anderson, and. Yes, they will use Anderson a few times in the coming months. And do you think they would shoot this angle, Dave, really, and not have plans to book C.W. Anderson? Like, they literally were just like, hey, C.W., come into this Ring of Honor show, call Gabe Sapolsky down, and then we never want to book you again. Like, no, of course they wouldn't do that. Like, yes, they definitely, I, without having firsthand knowledge, I guarantee you they knew they were going to book C.W. at this point. Yes, he was back... Uh, under the pay of ROH. Yeah, you, you, you do not book this to happen and not have him come to work a match. But I suppose it was memorable. Uh, I remembered it. Uh, I don't want to remember it. I wish I didn't, but... but <laughs> I, some- I found it amusing more than anything. Like, Gabe and his screaming. It's like, it was ridiculous. And if I was watching it in real time, I would be like, okay, what the fuck are they doing? But, like, you know, 15 years removed, it's like... It's entertaining that they bothered doing this and seeing Gabe with the screaming. So it di- it didn't bother me that much. It was stupid, but I was it was wa- it was eminently watchable to me. I, it was it was entertaining because it was so dumb, but I still was annoyed by it, and I still I just it's, it's just so stupid. I thought it was one of the dumbest things they've done all year, and but something I will remember in a positive way is the number one contender's trophy finals match, the finals for the tournament, Paul London taking on and defeating in their second match in Ring of Honor, Brian Danielson. He Paul London beats Danielson via pinfall in 18 minutes, 39 seconds, after he hits a shooting star press. 
Matt, I really enjoyed this match, but how much did you enjoy this match? Because I'm going to bet you at least somewhat enjoyed this match. I did somewhat enjoy this match. No, I liked it a lot. Um, I, uh, I, I I thought, first of all, the first thing I noticed, just, I mean, I guess it's keeping in kayfabe, that right after that C.W. Anderson thing, um, Chris Lovey is on commentary, being completely calm and in character, proving that Gabe Sapolsky and Chris Lovey are completely different people. Um, <laughs> they actually don't even mention the C.W. Anderson because, you know, we don't want to give uh, any uh, any um, attention to this person who, shoot, crashed the show. Um, so that wasn't an angle, so you got to ignore it. Um, but um, he actually, he called Danielson the best in the world, and that was way back in 2002. And, wow. And the funny thing is, like, he does seem like one of the best, like in his way, like at least in terms of like the mat wrestling and the execution of it, he really was already one of the best in the world. Um, I, I, you know, I guess he didn't, he didn't have the whole package or anything yet, but I don't think it seemed that crazy to hear him say that. Uh, I don't know. What do you think about that one? I, I think he's like, it is, it's weird where going back and watching these Ring of Honor shows, there's some things that surprise you in some ways, but in a way it's been a weird anti-surprise where Brian Danielson is still, is like 80 or 90% of his peak already at 21 in 2002. And he's so good already. And almost all his matches hold up from this year. Like if you made a compilation, I was thinking the other day, just of every Brian Danielson match in 2002, like apart from a couple of matches, that would be an amazing compilation to watch, even in 2017. Yeah. Like it all holds up; it's still great. It, it's just like I, I can't believe how good young Danielson holds up. Yeah, he's such a uh, he's almost as good as Brian Daniel. Um, <laughs> I'm really, a fan of that guy. Really good at infrastructure. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I guess the storyline of the match is that. Um, that Dragon is more aggressive than ever. Like, he's just, like, vicious and aggressive. Um, and London is just, like, really trying hard to just match him in brutality and, and uh, you know, and, and you know, just toughness. And, I, you know, I think it works. Uh, you know, Dragon's uh, in control for a lot. He hits, like, nine chops in a row in the corner and London collapses. Then hits a European uppercut and that gets a big ovation. The crowd, like, the crowd was definitely into this match. Um um, but uh, Gabe is pushing that Dragon needs a big victory to get to the top tier because he's like always, you know, straddling it but never on it. He lost the number one contenders match to AJ, um, and he needs a win here. That's kind of the storyline. So, so Dragon's dominating on the mat. Uh, London comes back. He drop kicks, springboard forearm, um, hits a um, a standing moonsault. Um, then there's like a an arm trap. German suplex by Dragon, which cuts London off. Um, Gorman, um, he mistakenly says that Danielson was in the uh, was in the Iron Man title match, but he he forgot he meant the uh, the thirty minute Iron Man match. So Gabe corrects him, and Gorman's like, "Oh no, I'm I'm very sorry about that." Such a nice guy. He's just such so a charming. Nice guy. He's yeah. Like he feels. Hum- we were talking about the other day. He feels human in a way that other pers- uh, wrestling announcers have don't. I wouldn't say he's the best wrestling announcer ever obviously but i would say it would be quite he, a, it would be quite a bold statement if you did that would be the end of the podcast our <laughs> listeners would drop to zero but i would say he would be in the top three of guys that you might want to go out to dinner with and yeah. that's a likability is an underrated um 
quality in, in wrestling announcers, I find. If we're doing a fuck, marry, kill for wrestling announcers, I would marry Jeff Gorman. Yeah, he'd be a good wife. Yeah. Husband. I'm the, I'm the husband. I'm the, I'm the wife. It's <laughs> clear on this one. Um, well, no, I guess no further comments necessary on that particular thing. <laughs> Moving on. Um, so they're... Uh, their legs are um, they're, they're locked together, and they have a chop fight on their knees. And uh, and London, uh, then he cradles Dragon for two, crowds into that. Um, so Dragon does his top rope back suplex, and it's one of the best ones he's ever done. It's just this huge top rope back suplex, and London basically lands on his face. And uh, then that's when Dragon starts favoring his knee, which they really don't do much of in this match, but it's kind of a callback to the Collier match. He starts mm-hmm. favoring the knee. He does the cattle mutilation, but he uh, he sells the left knee. like He sort of lifts it off the mat because he can't really put weight on it. Um, but London makes the ropes. He goes for a second back suplex. So at this point, I'm really liking the match, but I'm sort of like it doesn't fully get into that final gear of like a really great match. But then... Um, so Dragon goes for a second back suplex, and London fights off. He, uh, he tries to knock Dragon off the top rope, and Dragon is defiant, but London finally knocks him off. Then Dragon comes back up right away, and they have another struggle at the top rope, and Dragon's like, is that all you got? And he's, they're just fighting and fighting and fighting, and London knocks him off again. Then Dragon comes up one more time, and there's just like this epic struggle on the top rope, and London finally knocks him off with headbutts and hits the shooting star press for three. And I thought just that final sequence on the top rope put it from, like, really good, well-executed match to great match. Because you very... You, like, that's a very unique finish. I don't think that I've even seen it before. Just this epic struggle on the top, and, you know, with the guy finally hitting his finisher. I just love the intensity. I love the execution. And I thought this really turned into a great match. Just, I mean, that... Like I said, that series of spots on the top rope alone put it over the top for me. I, I thought this was a great match as well. Uh, I like, I actually like the tempo of this match. I feel like a lot of matches, particularly even some Brian Danielson matches at this time, they do the thing where we're going to do all the mat work at the front, and then we're going to go into the high impact stuff afterwards. And it's very almost like they flick a switch. I thought this had a nice mid tempo for a lot of the match, where a guy would hit a couple moves, ground a guy in a submission or a hold in general. Other guy would fight out of it, hit a couple moves, and um, then put a submission on of his own. And it never, like, you never got stuck in just one thing. It kept moving and changing just enough throughout where you were always engaged. I I felt it just kept a nice pace like that, a nice amount of variation throughout what they were doing. Um, What I said before about in the Collier match, I wanted more mean Danielson. It's as if he heard me because this is the meanest, grouchiest Danielson we've gotten yet in 2002 Ring of Honor. At one point, he he almost verges on heelish because at one point, he uh, steps on Paul London's jaw and then walks over his face. And that's, that's pretty dickish. And he's just pasting him, you know, with forearms and chops. And London's responding in kind, but Danielson... Danielson has this amazing ability, and part of it in this match is that London is so good, is one of the best um, babyface like underdogs in wrestling, I feel like. He was really that generation's Johnny Gargano, for people that watch modern NXT. But I feel like Danielson, he's 21 years old, 
and he just comes off as this grizzled veteran ass kicker when he wants to be. And I was saying this to you the other day. He feels like in this match, you know, Danielson in this match is 21. Paul London's older. He's 22. Like Danielson feels like he's 35 and Paul London feels 21. Just the way they wrestle. And and yes, Paul, in a way, Paul Lennon was an underdog because even at this point in their careers, Danielson was the far more established name. And Paul Lennon's the guy rising up to get to his level. But it it, it just, it feels like they're worlds apart in, in, in their like roles in the match. Yeah, and it's funny because you never really, Danielson never really got to play that role in WWE, did he? Of just like the 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 kind of like the just the super skilled like um uberman that, that that you know that could just waste a guy you know he was always the underdog in wwe or like as a heel kind of like the sniveling weasel but he was never he never got to play the dominant like wrestling ace yeah and even when he brought in intensity later in wwe it was more always just like he was like this spitfire but they never really would let other guys show enough ass where he was like the dominant ass kicker, Matt Wizard, twisting him up and hurting him. You know, they weren't going to let guys work like Jack Evans against Brian Danielson, where they would just let him lay waste to them. Right. Which is sad because, I mean, obviously Danielson did just fine for himself in WWE and did put on lots of entertaining stuff. He's so talented, he can adapt. But it was, it's almost like uh, how I felt when Low Key first signed to WWE, where it was like, they will never let him play this role that he's so great at. Yep. You just know, they, because of the way they feel about size, guys their size, even if they will, in some respects now, push them, they're never going to let them play that role. That that You you can't be a five foot nine guy or whatever and be pushed in WWE as an ass kicker who dominates other guys and is to be feared and like in awe of. That's just not the way they see those guys. Exactly. But, in this, in a match like this, Danielson shows you how great he is at being that guy. When he, I mean, it's not the only thing he was or could be, but it's a side of him that he's not been able to play in a long time, and he's great at it. Um, yeah, I feel like based on what, like based on what you said about how he's all the way there, I almost feel like as much buzz as he had in two thousand two, he was almost underrated. Like he wasn't really talked about. You know, maybe in some circles, like by hardcore indie fans, but not like in the Observer or anything like that, as like one of like the real best in the world. He was talked about how as, an, as like an excellent up and comer, but he's just he's on another level as of almost anybody at this character at this point. This technical, you know, wizard who's also just a badass, like uh, mean, tough, nasty guy when he wants to be. Also, like he he just like he was like I said, he was already starting to put the character together. Um, you know, you know, I know everyone pretty much said he was great, but he's another level of great. It just, everyone talks about Matt Riddle and Matt Riddle is great. And one of the reasons he gets a lot of hype though, is because he got so good so quickly as, but Brian Danielson probably took maybe a little bit longer out of wrestling school to get to the level he is now, but not long because he's 20, only 21 here. And also again, Brian Danielson's a 21-year-old man. Matt Riddle was like around 30 when he really broke into wrestling. So just think about the life experience and how mature you are as a human being. Uh, I defy you to find many 21-year-olds this good at anything, you know, that's 
that is usually the the playground of adults that are. Uh, yeah, I uh, mean, when I, I mean, sure, there are plenty of twenty-one-year-olds that are that good at, at jerking off or whatever. But in terms of an actual job, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, uh, Brian Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Uh, I don't, Matt. You know what? I'm going to go on a limb here. I don't think there are many 21-year-olds as good as jerking off as 20-year-old Brian Danielson was at wrestling. I'm going to go that far. And think of the number of 21-year-olds who have put in a lot of experience doing that other thing. Um, that's, how, that, that's the best compliment I'll ever pay to Brian Danielson. To anyone, really. <laughs> I'll try and find a better one for you one day, but it's Thank you. pretty hot. But you already told me you loved me tonight, so... <laughs> There's got to be more than love. But um, this match, I thought this was a great match. I, I liked it from the whole way. I will note that... Uh, doing a lot of noting tonight. But anyway, um, I really... Uh, something I'm a sucker for in wrestling, a trope I'm a sucker for, is when two guys fight on the top rope to land a move. I'm a sucker for that. I love that feeling of like you're doing the King Kong movie, but you're like five feet off the ground. I love when two guys fight standing on a turnbuckle. I think it makes whoever gets to land the move, it makes that move seem way more important because you've spent time building to it and having two guys fight over who gets the right to do that. And especially in this match, I think it's one of the best examples ever of that spot because Danielson had already hit that back, back superplex, gotten a near fall, and he goes to do it again. And then obviously London's big finisher is the shooting star press. And it really felt like whoever won that battle was going to automatically win the match. Because if Danielson won that battle, he was going to hit a second back superplex. London probably wasn't ever going to kick out of that. And obviously, if London won that battle to to hold on to the top rope, he was going to hit the shooting star press. And as you said, they go to it three times. They have the, And it gets more and more intense to the point where London's throwing headbutts, where they they put everything they have into it where it's not just like, oh, this guy tugs on this guy, he holds onto the ropes. Like They are fighting tooth and nail over who's going to get to land a top rope move. And it's just it, so it good. It really puts the match into another level. I'm serious. Just that like one, maybe it's like maybe like two and a half minutes, that whole sequence. But it just, maybe less than that actually. But it just brings that match, it makes it so much more memorable. And it was already it, really good. It's one of the best final minutes of any Ring of Honor match this year. Like And just maybe one of my final minutes, probably not my favorite final minute, but in a certain way, like it, it's, it's really up there. Like it's, it's a great final minute of a match in terms of like uniqueness. Cause obviously there are maybe more exciting final minutes of matches, you know, out there in existence, but in terms of uniqueness, I think plus execution, I think this is one of the best I've seen. Yeah. Just a great match. Um, it's amazing that two guys this young were able to have a great match like this. It's another feather in Paul London's cap because yeah, he had the great match on scripted, but that was a big crazy gimmick spot. Here he's having just a straight up wrestling match. Also, I mean, you know, Danielson and Loki also had one that's probably even better, but they had wrestled each other like a billion times. This is maybe like the second match between London. I and think Danielson. this might be the second match because I think yeah. I remember they said the match they had at that Gauntlet series that was just a couple two or three shows ago was their first match. So, so this is they had one point five, right? Didn't that yeah, as said? you say, yeah, one point five. This is their second match because that was kind of a half match um great match the only one other thing i want to bring up is just a couple of the other neat spots there's a moment where uh they do a like a, a sequence where i think london's going for a clothesline and it gets 
almost reversed or someone's going for something and London attempts like an almost proto rainmaker and Danielson ducks it and seamlessly turns it into a big straight jacket German that just murders London. I thought that was awesome. Um, there's a spot where uh, London does a uh, arm drag and Danielson jumps up and he goes for an arm drag too and you think it's going to be Oh, they're going to trade iron drags. Like, that's a typical wrestling spot, particularly in these, like, 50-50, keep trading stuff. But no, like, London fakes him out, so Danielson arm drags air. And then London hits, like, another arm drag and then a uh, Japanese arm drag to finish him off. And I thought that was just a cool moment where it plays on your idea of so much of indie wrestling is 50-50, back and forth, back and forth. And I loved in that sequence, they just let it so London completely outsmarted Danielson and hit all the arm drags. Danielson didn't get one. Like, little moments like that that aren't huge things. I, I just love stuff like that. And I, I think um, there's a moment where there's a sequence you people should watch. I mean, you should watch this whole match, but there's a sequence where Danielson has london in an indian deathlock and the whole sequence is just masterful it's almost like some i know danielson has recently gone um the edging christian show or some show and said like you know zach saber jr is doing all the stuff i couldn't do or wouldn't think to do and that's true of some of this but this is like some zach saber jr shit he uh he has London in a Indian deathlock, and he keeps dropping elbows well in the Indian deathlock to London. And then after that, he sits on London's back, still holding the Indian deathlock with his legs. Then he grabs London's arms, stretches them behind London's back, and like turns into a different kind of submission. Then, while holding his arms and the deathlock, he turns both their bodies over so London's in a pinfall attempt. It's like one of those chains where he chains like three things together like before the days of Zack Sabre Jr. Just so, so cool. Just made it, it's one of those moments where Danielson feels like he could do anything. It's just, uh, you know, we're going to have to find different ways to gush about Danielson because I feel like it's going to get old to people quickly because he's already so great. This, this young, this early in ring of honor, just, ugh, I can't get over it. <laughs> I feel like a 21 year old doing the thing he's great at. It's just, it, it's amazing how good he is. <laughs> um, yeah, so great match, great match. And I'm just going to laugh at that comment because it's yeah. so many connotations. We, we, then what makes this match even better, and if you're going to watch this like just seeking out this match, you have to watch this after sequence because it makes it better. Um, Paul London gets on the mic after the mic after the match. And he puts over Danielson really hard, like harder than he puts over himself. In fact, he says, even though I won tonight, Brian Danielson's a better wrestler than me. He says, Danielson might is the best wrestler in the entire company. And he says that Danielson has the potential to be the greatest wrestler of all time. And he talks about how he wishes there was two trophies. And if you watch London this match, I have a hard time sometimes knowing what's real in wrestling and what's not. But he sees, seems on the verge of legitimate tears here. He seems overwhelmed that they just had a great match, that Danielson would do this for him and put him over. He just he seems caught up in the moment and so legitimately like gracious and and putting over Danielson so hard. It's like a heartwarming moment, legit heartwarming moment. But undercut uh, a little bit. I thought it was really funny actually. So so uh, London's like you're a better wrestler than me, Brian Danielson, and blah 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 blah. And then Danielson takes the mic. 
and you know, like I said, because this is like probably like an honest moment. And you know, you expect, you know, you know, with these hum, humi- you know, these humble moments, to be like, no, 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 you know, you're you were the better man tonight, you know, whatever. He's like, Danielson's just like, well, you know, it's not always about being a better wrestler. You had more heart than me. Like he just he fully takes the compliment. Like, yeah, I'm better. I'm a better wrestler. Yeah, like he still tries to put him over, but he's not going to deny. Like, yeah, I'm probably a better wrestler than you. Yeah. But yeah, he makes it about heart. And then um, Danielson goes to leave, but London wants him to come back in and give the handshake, and they shake hands. And it's just, it's a nice moment. You need moments in wrestling like this sometimes where it's not about building to a few. It's just about, hey, that was really cool. I like it. And for the first time in one of these moments in a while, the prophecy does not run out to ruin the the uh, go, the mushy moment. No, and it, the crowd gets into it. You know, this crowd that hasn't been a good crowd, I would say probably the worst crowd Ring of Honors had. That you know, they're, they're clapping and cheering, and they get into like they they recognize it too when they really talk about it. So just a feel good, great thing all around. And right from that, we go into the Ring of Honor title match. Xavier successfully defends. He's escorted to the ring by Simply Luscious, who does his ring announcing for him. But Xavier defends and defeat this title by defeating AJ Styles, who is escorted to the ring for the first time by Alexis Lurie. He defeats AJ by pinfall in 17 minutes, 8 seconds, when he does a cradle on AJ, holding an injured AJ Styles leg. Um... This match, I would say, is one of the better Xavier matches he's had in Ring of Honor, and I would still say it's only good, and I would say it's good because of AJ Styles. Were you going to say something? Oh, I was going to wait till you were done, but I like this match a lot less than you, I think, because I, I thought it wasn't even as good as Xavier's match against Jeremy Lopez. Wow. Okay, so I'm going to go on. Um, AJ... Um, I thought this was good, not, not like a low good, but I did enjoy it. I felt one thing about this match that, that carried it for me was I felt like Xavier was just Xavier. He was his usual thing of very light healing, a little bit of like rest holds on the mat, and his typical spots, some that look good, some that don't, punches, typical Xavier. But I felt like AJ kept the match he never let the match slow down too much. I felt like AJ was just in his physical peak here where so much of what he does looks just snappy. And he did a lot of like enziguris and jumping kicks here where he has this really good, almost low keyish combination here of athleticism and like a real snap and pop where it looks like he could be hurting somebody. And in a couple sections of the match, actually, Maybe he did too good a job at that because there's a couple sections where he looks like he might have almost hurt Xavier. There's a spinning back suplex where he drops Xavier right on his head. And then later, there's a kick where um, Xavier's kind of on his knee and AJ kicks him right in the face and it looks horrible. And you can tell even AJ was worried because he immediately leans in to, I presume, ask Xavier if he's all right. It looked like he was because they kept wrestling. But I thought AJ kept you know, I never got bored during a 17-minute Xavier match. He kept it going. I thought AJ just... There, there wasn't, like, a great story. Well, actually, there was story to this match, and it was bad story. So I'll go into that in a second. But first, I just want to say AJ looked good. And I thought he carried this match. But it's bookended by two really weird things, this match. The start of the match is... um. Xavier gets in AJ's face before the bell. He slaps AJ in the face, and this prompts AJ 
to attack Xavier before the bell and beat him down. They ring the bell as the beatdown happens. AJ lifts Xavier up and hits the Styles Clash in the first 20 seconds. And he gets he goes to cover Xavier and simply Luscious goes to grab and put Xavier's leg on the rope. And Gabe then says, oh, Simply Luscious put, you know, Xavier's leg on the rope. Except she didn't. Because if you go back and watch this match, the problem is Xavier and AJ are in the corner after the after the Styles Clash. They're lying on the corner. And the, the, the part of the corner that they're closest to the ropes is the opposite side of the hard camera. And that's where the ring announcer and Frank Talent and whoever sits. So Simply Luscious can't get to Xavier from that side of the ring. So instead, you see she realizes too late, she's almost all the way into the ring trying to grab Xavier's leg to drag it to the other rope that he's too far away from. So you see at the end, actually, she never gets to put his leg on the rope. Xavier just puts it on the closer rope that she couldn't reach on his own. And after that, Alexis Lurie gets in the ring. She attacks Simply Luscious, and Mark Briscoe takes Simply Luscious to the back, and that gets rid of all the seconds. And another big problem is the rest of the match, they wrestle another, you know, 16 minutes or whatever, and you wouldn't know that Xavier had just taken AJ Styles' finisher. Like, they just work a back-and-forth match. He doesn't seem any worse for wear. Well, there's an edit, though, at some point. Like, there's an edit in between, like, when uh, Mark Briscoe pulls Simply Luscious out, and then they kind of, there's an edit where they start wrestling again. So presumably you can say that maybe there was some time in between. Maybe. At which Xavier recovered. That is a good point. The, the, um, I did not notice that. I mean, I did notice that, but I forgot to mention it. But the the other me- it, weird part, I would I would say, is the end of the match because the end of the match is, um, they they wrestle a seventeen minute match, and they play up this heavy story of AJ's knee being hurt, but they only play it up in like the final minute or two. That's the only time Xavier starts working on AJ's knee. And all he does is he kicks it a few times, maybe applies one or two moves to it, and then AJ hits a second Styles Clash off the second rope, I think, and they sell it so that in landing on the Styles Clash, he uh, hurt his knee too bad to, it takes him a second extra to make the cover, so that gives them an out like, oh, if his knee wasn't hurt, he might have won right there. And then moments after that, Xavier is able, after a little bit more wrestling, he just Gets AJ on the mat. He does like a pinfall where he like twists and grabs onto the injured knee and gets the pin. And my whole problem with that is that would be a great story, except again, Xavier did barely anything to the knee and he only did it in the final minute or two to the point where when Xavier's going at the knee at one point, this is how Gabe describes it. And I quote, he goes, that was the knee that Xavier kicked a few times. Like, like it wasn't like that's the knee that he really hurt or went after he was like, oh yeah. That's the knee he kicked a few times. Like, he, he did almost nothing to it, but yet it's, like, the whole basis for the ending of the match. So, even in a match I thought wasn't bad, still a couple really weird moments. Yeah, I I don't know. I think this might be our biggest disagreement in a match that we've ever had so far, because I thought this match was bad. Um, I, um, I thought AJ looked off. Like, I would take the... Uh, I would take several matches tonight above this. Maybe not the Michael Shane match, but I'd rather watch the... I definitely thought that the Punk versus Cabana was a better match than this. Um, I thought that... It, you know, just AJ looked off. I thought the match was formless. You know, Maybe I'm blinded by the fact that the crowd was completely dead and didn't react to anything at all in the entire match. Um, they did a, like a, one of those whole like series of 
roll-up spots, and I almost felt bad for them by how non-reactive the crowd was to any of it. Um, it was just they just traded moves back and forth. There was no, um, there was really no form to it. I thought at all. Um, like it wasn't the worst match I've ever seen, but by AJ Styles standards, I thought it was incredibly disappointed. But I'll watch it again. Maybe I, um, maybe there's something that I'm uh, missing here. Matt, please don't watch it again. Don't. I mean, it wasn't. Yeah. I, I like I said, I thought it was a low good. I don't want to put you through that. Yeah. But it's yeah, it is interesting that we disagree, and it just looks like we saw different things. But you make a good point about the crowd. They were really quiet for this match, and. Um, you could hear like the individual boos for Xavier. There's a funny moment where Gorman and Gabe try to sell pretty hard that like about how the fans hate Xavier, even though this match isn't getting very much of a reaction. But there's a funny moment later where Xavier does some cool move or something, and he gets um so, uh, some applause from the crowd. And Gabe at first goes, you know. He starts off like, you know, this is a sign of how how respectful Ring of Honor fans are because, you know, even though Xavier's a bad guy, he did, you know, did this cool thing and they're clapping for it. And then like halfway through, he kind of get you can tell he gets annoyed, like he changes his mind. He's like, why are they clapping for him after they booed him? Like, he's a bad guy. Like, he, he, like Gabe gets almost annoyed that the crowd cheered for him after he was praising them for cheering his move. But I, I just wrote, um, thank God for Gabe. Um, indie crowds never cheer for wrestlers that are supposed to be heels ever again. Like, yeah, I, games I, never. Yeah, I agree with that. I I also agree that the AJ selling the knee after the Styles class seemed very out of nowhere. Like it just uh, it was kind of random. Um, but this this okay. So here is something that that might illustrate something about this match. So early in the match, you know, Gabe does the thing where like during you know title matches, he goes oh he promotes stuff. And he's promoting all the upcoming shows. And I have to admit, I'm impressed with how far in advance he was booking here. Because he was announcing matches for, like, several shows in advance. Three um, shows deep, I think. He, he was announcing shows for final ba- matches for Final Battle, the first show of the year, and then the uh, first anniversary show, which would be three shows down the line. Yeah, and, and while as he starts in on this, he's, he tells Gorman, it's like, okay, you know, Ms. Jeff Gorman, make sure you interrupt me if there's something important happening in the match. So Gabe's going over all this stuff, and literally Gorman's like, "Wait, wait, wait just I guess let me stop you for a second. Xavier's doing a really good job with this headlock right here. <laughs> that did that not happen? No, I remember laughing at that because I was like, Jeff, you didn't have to do that. Wasn't you could you could have let Gabe finish right there? And he literally I, like told him to stop talking. But but I felt like Gabe was going on so long that Gorman felt like they needed to call a spot no matter what the spot was. But that was just like the most boring time. Yeah. But it, that's what it felt like to me. Like Gorman was probably sitting there thinking, Gee, like, geez, he's done two minutes straight of plugs. Like we have to say something about the match right now. Yes. And, and, and it was a headlock. Yes. But, but, the, but there were a lot of those like chin locks, all that stuff. Um. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I just thought it wasn't a good match. I think uh, another thing we should bring up or something that interests me about this uh, of lens to view this match through is we were talking the, uh, on another show about how Xavier wasn't getting booked any different as champ than not as champ. He was still doing a lot of undercard matches against like low-tier or mid-tier opponents. This is probably his... Uh, his best opportunity since he's gotten the title. He's in the semi-main event 
with a talented, like, big indie name in AJ Styles. He gets plenty of time, and yet, you know, he has to follow a great match with London and uh, Danielson, and it's on a show with probably, like, the smallest and worst Ring of Honor crowd of the year. So, I mean, obviously those are problems that anyone that's a champion has to face. If you're the champ, you're expected to deliver in tough situations. But it, it is kind of funny or bittersweet for him, I guess. Like, you're finally getting a fairly good spot on the card. You're, you're not before the number one contenders match this time. And yet, you know, it, it's just it's not a good position for them. They get a far worse reaction than you'd want a world uh, a title match to get. So you, the people, if you really want to watch a 17-minute Xavier match, you can decide for yourselves, are you more of a Matt person or more of a Trevor person here? But even I, I'm topping out at very low good, not even very good. So keep that in mind. The Xavier train keeps rolling. This was a weird match. Yeah. And then that brings us to the main event, and that is a bunkhouse match. Abdullah the Butcher and Homicide defeat the Carnage crew of DeVito and Loke in 9 minutes, 25 seconds, when Homicide pins Loke after hitting a cop killer. Um, Dave wrote in The Observer, everyone was pretty happy with how Butcher turned out. Matt, how happy were you with how Butcher turned out? Well, I guess I felt a little bit like Michael Bluth when I watched this match, because after it was over, I basically said to myself, well, I don't know what I expected. Um, it was um, <laughs> it was literally just fork stabs, just a bunch of fork stabbings. Like Abdullah just stabbed people with the fork. Homicide did a, um, you know, he did his tope con heel. He tried to put Loke on the on the table. The table broke, so he propped the table up against the rail and uh, and did the and did the helo. Um, and Loke rolled out of the way, so Homicide went crashing through the table. And he won eventually with the cop killer on Loke. And those are really the only spots for me to talk about because otherwise the match itself, because there's stuff after the match, but the match itself was uh, Abdullah repeatedly stabbed Loke with a fork. And it seems like when he does his fork stabbing, most of his fork stabs are actual fork stabs. Am I, am I, am I wrong about that? He's actually like... Mm, Jabbing his fork into people's heads until they bleed, right? This is this not I'm, like they're not like worked fork shots. I'm not sure. I, I thought some of them looked fake, but I couldn't tell. Like there are definitely times where he's just holding the fork there, and yeah, you could yeah. either he's not, say he's not, he's not always doing it for real, but it seems like a few times he was. But there are even times where he's holding the fork where I'm I I can't tell from the what I can see is he just holding it there as like a fake thing, or is he like really digging it in? You know, you can't always tell, but. Like, but I like the way the guys were bleeding. It's different than the way they normally bleed, which is why I feel like they were probably forked. And the uh, the ironic thing is, Abby is the only guy in this match who doesn't bleed. Which, considering what we know now about possibly him having hepatitis, like probably for the best that he yeah. did not bleed. But it, it's kind of funny, you know. Everyone is bleeding, but Abdullah. It's like you said. I I, I think we should stress. I think the first half of this match is mostly the camera on Abdullah, and Abdullah in this match, apart from a couple punches, and that might be it, he does literally nothing but fork to the forehead. That's it. Yes, like, nothing lit- else. Literally nothing. Yeah, exactly. It, it is just him, and it's mostly on Loke. He's, he's just putting forks to, the, forks to heads, and 
it's to the point where I laughed out loud during this, where Abdullah eventually gets in the ring after like four or five minutes on the outside, walking around the ring, putting a fork to Loke's head. And Gabe is like shocked. He's like, I didn't know if we were going to see him get in the ring again. Like, like Gabe is almost impressed that Abdullah the Butcher found it in himself to roll into the ring to do more fork stabbing. It was impressive, though, because I, um, I thought the same thing that Gabe did, which is like, uh, he was outside the ring, I was like, oh, he can't get in the ring, I guess he's just going to stand outside and do fork steps, and when he was in the ring, I was like, whoa, he's in the ring, so I I understand the reaction. The other funny thing was, um, um, Gorman was saying something about something making sense, and Gabe was like, this is ROH, everything in ROH makes sense, you just have to follow it and pay attention, and so Trevor, let me just ask you, you and I have sort of made it our business to pay very close attention to 2002 ROH, right? Yes. Does everything make sense? Uh, uh, some things do, but uh, no, most things do, but even Does the things... Everything? No, and I would also say that a lot of times, like, Gabe had, like, this is something I feel like Gabe had an attitude with, where... I, I think sometimes Gabe feels like he's playing checker. I mean, chess sometimes when he's only playing checkers. Like he's like everything so intricate and building to something else. And a lot of times it really isn't. Like everything in Ring of Honor makes sense if you pay attention. Like it's all connected. It's like eh, not always, you know. Yeah. Have you like, seen some like of that? Did, Christopher- did the Tony Mamaluke, um, the the uh, Maritato feud make complete sense? Not really. Did Joey Matthews joining Special K really make sense? Not really. There's a bunch of other stuff that I'm sure I'm forgetting, but not everything makes sense. Did the uh, did the C.W. Anderson thing make sense? Not really. But again, it, it's Gabe. Like uh, going back, he's so like almost adorably like defensive. Where Gorman makes like an offhanded remark, not even trying to like call down Ring of Honor, obviously, and Gabe just like snipes back with that line about you know everything in Ring of Honor makes sense if you pay attention, like. Just how defensive does that come off? It's just yeah. wow. And um, but yeah, I mean this. I mean this match was kind of gross. I don't know. I don't like watching guys get stabbed with forks repeatedly. We are real or not? It's and with the blood. I don't know. I thought it was kind of gross. <laughs> Uh, I mean, G- Gabe hyped this on the Scramble Mathis show, hyping this show. He said, you're going to see a fork, and you're going to see some blood. And literally, he could have said, you're only going to see a fork and only see some blood. And he wouldn't have been exaggerating very much, apart from, like, the Tope Conhilo and a couple other spots and the cop killer at the end. If you like watching people bleed, I mean, this is a good match. But there's almost nothing else to it. I Watching this, I just was left with... How weird wrestling is and how weird Abdul the Butcher is. Like, Abdul the Butcher was in his early 60s at this point. Abdul the Butcher is basically a fat turtle with a fork in his mouth who gets makes a living doing being that. Like, it's surreal to think Abdul the Butcher made a life out of just making people bleed with a fork and slowly walking around a ring. Well, he, yeah, I, mean, he, I think when he was younger, he did a little more than that. A little. This is Abdullah I've watched at his, Abdullah. Le- it's, his it's, least mobile and least capable at, at this point, you know? He, did, he didn't do much more than this. Like, he did some, but not a ton. And it, it's also funny where this is built to end the Homicide Carnage Crew feud, which started on the first show where... Uh, I believe Homicide stabbed Loke when Loke was a referee with a fork. So in that way, it's a nice full circle moment. But it's weird that you have this feud where 
you know, Boogaloo was written off because of the Carnage crew. And it, this feud's been going since the first show on and off and all this stuff. And, you know, the whole central idea of this match is, you know, Homicide's bringing in, like, the most brutal man ever, Abdul the Butcher, to settle this blood feud. And, you know, it's a fat old man barely, you know doing anything stabbing guy in the head with a fork his pants his pants were i'm not exaggerating literally up to his nipples yeah and he has big saggy man boobs and they basically the pants are higher than they should be the boobs are lower than they should be and they find a nice middle (laughs) ground to meet and i describe it as watching this match and the way you know the story of this match would be like if you were watching friday the 13th part 25 and it starred an 85 year old jason and Jason was using a walker and no threat to anybody, but everyone in the movie still acted like he was young Jason. Like, that's how this match and the commentary, at least during the match was, we'll get to something else in a second, where Abdullah the Butcher can't do anything, but everyone's still treating him like this crazy legend that's frightening and brutal, and it's it's interesting from a real surreal, like, this is only in wrestling kind of thing. You don't see this in other things. You you don't see an actor who's lost the ability to talk, like still being pushed as a huge star. You don't people see people act against him and like pretend that he's talking and just respond to things he's not actually saying. <laughs> well, now I want to see that. I mean, this would be like if you took, I don't know, an old hockey player and made him play in the NHL now and had all the players around him pretend like he was still really good. Like, Oh yeah, we definitely didn't let you score there. Wayne, you, you did great. You're still, you still got it. I mean, it's just so weird, but um, after the match, like, I don't even know how to rate that match. Oh, oh, and also, but you'd think, like, the real poetic justice would be if the Carnage crew stabbed Homicide with a fork here. And it makes you wonder, if you know you're wrestling a duel of the Butcher and Homicide, why don't you bring your own forks? Or, or it's a bunkhouse match, why don't you bring much of anything to the ring? Just hubcaps they had. Yeah, and there was a couple chair shots in the match. I, that's one of the other things I forgot Abby did do. He did, like, a couple really bad punches and a couple chair shots. To the head. Like, yes. Which uh, it's maybe a little bit shady when you're, like, hitting guy, like, really hard in the head but not taking a single bit of punishment yourself. But, yeah, uh, you that's... know, whatever. I guess, you know, it is. That's wrestling, I guess. Uh, Loke does hit a pretty cool backdrop driver on Homicide at one point. That's another thing that I forgot to mention. But it yeah. really is mostly just fork, 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 fork. There's actually a long period where you see Abdullah just forking Loke, and you don't see Homicide or uh, DeVito for like a good like three or four minutes. Yeah. Like they just don't cut to them at all. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's weird that Dave Com I go back to where he says that people were really happy with how Abdullah turned out. Like, I guess he did exactly what you'd expect him to do, but. It's still really weird. I mean, I don't know how much money he got paid to do this, but I just like how how I want I want to know how they really felt like about watching this performance. I mean, it's probably what they expected, right? Like they they probably this is yeah. what they brought him in for, right? What else, I mean, and you know, I, I can't like 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 I said, like I, what I don't know what I expected. Like what else would they have expected from it? So I I mean I, I don't think they I, I doubt they'd be unhappy with it. I mean, Dave's report claimed that they thought there was a bunch of Abdullah fans that came in, but even though it's not Abdullah's fault because they had to change the location of the show on short notice, this was the least attended Ring of Honor show so far, I think. So it, it wasn't a giant crowd he brought, I, don't, I can't imagine. 
Yeah, but, and I, I, I do, I do like wonder about the wrestling fan, even in 2002. That's like, oh, I don't want to come out to a show, but man, Abdullah the Butcher, he's going to be there. Got to, got to watch him. Got to, got to go out of my way to go this thing. I definitely wouldn't have gone to to see Abdullah. Yeah. I mean, he is a legend, but I don't know if he's on that level of legend. But I guess to some people he is. I don't know. I yeah. guess maybe it's you know just not. I didn't watch you know wherever he was big. What was it Puerto Rico? Places like that. Where where were his biggest territories? I guess Japan and some. Uh, Japan, too. Puerto Rico. You know the feud with Brody. Everyone is like his one of his big calling cards. Was Obviously, that, was that in Puerto Rico that feud? I think that might have been in multiple places, but it was definitely in Puerto Rico because I watched a few brief clips of it last night just to see what young Abby was like versus old Abby. And from how young, what I how watched, young, but was that even young Abby? That was probably like early old Abby. That was probably like in the mid to late eighties. So yeah, still forty something Abby instead of sixty something Abby. But yeah. I mean, I, and I've seen a bunch of obviously he was in early uh, early nineties, like ninety two. Yeah, WCW. so well, yeah, the Chamber of Horrors he was in, which I've seen mm-hmm. many times. Uh, this match was, in some ways, a Chamber of Horrors. <laughs> the post match other- was a, probably a Chamber of even more horror. So we should probably talk about that. One, yeah, one other trivia note for people: um, if you're watching this match near the end of the match, look for Gabe Sapolsky all of a sudden who out there holding one of the handheld cameras, doing some filming of his own. I don't know why he came out, but he's there. Um, after the match, a uh, bloody homicide. He gets. Uh, Loke in a noose tries to murder him. Is on in the on the mic while he's choking Loke. Eventually lets go. He says the feud with the Carnage crew. Oh wait, no. He after that comes later. He uh, chokes him. Eventually the car the ring crew express run in, including the actual ring crew and the just, ring crew express. The tag just team. a bunch of dorks just keep just run in to save Loke. It's weird. Yeah, and they get beat down by Abdullah and Homicide. Just later fork, the hit fork, squad. Fork, fork. Yeah, the hit squad run in later to also beat down on the ring crew. More chair shots, more fork shots, more blood. Goes on for too long. Hit squad get into a kind of an argument with Abby before Homicide calms them all down, smooths it over. Um, Homicide tries to lead the crowd in a butchered chant that half catches on. Uh, I guess they felt like they needed more chair shots and blood after the match, like nine minutes wasn't enough, so they gave him a bunch more here. Um... After the match, wait, 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 wait! You missed okay. some of the biggest stuff there. Um, okay, Julius Smokes runs out. Oh yeah, this is the first ever appearance of Julius Smokes. Julius Smokes runs out, but he's he's up. A, he's not with Homicide. He's he's one of the guys attacking um, uh, Homicide and Abdullah, and with him comes Low Life Louis Ramos. That's his nickname. I'm not calling him a Low Life. Um, <laughs> And this is the spot that they um, that they do in slow motion at the beginning of the show, and this is 100% real fork shots. Yeah. And so Abdullah just and like, but there's no. But when talking about everything in ROH making sense, there's no explanation of who these guys are. These are two guys that you've never seen before: Julius Smokes and Louis Ramos. Um, Smokes immediately, quickly gets out of the ring, and you hear him yelling stuff. I'm not really sure what. And Ramos just immediately just. You know, sacrificed at the altar of Abdullah. He just takes the most disgusting shoot fork shots to the head. Starts, you know, you just see like the blood coming out of the different, like four different places where the uh, where the tines uh, got him. It's gross. They're literally there just to take the most disgusting fork shots, and it makes no sense. Like, who the hell are they? Why are they there? What's going on? And then a few months later, you see you find Julius Smokes uh, as Homicide's corner man. So 
none of this makes any sense. Although I guess I just wasn't paying close enough attention or following it closely, I guess. Maybe that's why no, it because it, it makes even less sense because the Carnage crew has a history of attacking the ring crew. We've seen in multiple segments how they have fun just picking on the ring crew. So why would be they be the ones to defend H. Loke? Yeah. It makes zero. It goes against logic that they've built. Yeah. If anything, those should be the people that want to see Loke get hurt bad. So, yeah, just if you like blood, you got your blood. Um, backstage, Bloody Homicide says the feud with the Carnage crew is over. At the next show, he's going to win the number one contender four-way and prove he's the king of strong style. He would end up not even being in that match and had to be replaced by Steve Carino. Um. Somewhere else backstage, the Carnage crew talk about how they had fun in their match. They kind of do this weird Shawn Michaels against Hulk Hogan thing where they kind of, they just, they, they talk about how they had fun. Like they put over, they don't even really care about losing the match. Although and to then, be fair, Gabe kind of pushes that aspect of it too. So, yeah. so it's not them going to business for themselves. This is definitely, but, that's definitely what was booked. The next part is more of that Shawn Michaels thing, though, where they then bury Abdullah and they talk about how he can barely move and wonder why he's even considered a legend. Like, they really talk about, like, what, like, they basically bury his performance. And I agree in some ways, but you just lost to them in a match where you got dominated by him. So, going by just storyline, you're, you're t- saying this guy's like a piece of crap, but you just got killed by him. Uh, it, it just. And then Loke does this impassioned promo with good delivery but horrible material where he talks about how he, you know, the Carnage crew hate their families, you know, they have a, ugly wives and whiny kids, and the only joy they get other than going to the bar is beating people up and sharing their misery. They talk about how the smart marks on message boards killed their love for the business. They, uh... Uh, the uh, Loke ends the promo by saying they might do some chain wrestling to piss off the smart marks in the future. Like, ha you got us. But yeah, that, this that. is this is a big deal because this is the beginning of the real Carnage true gimmick. Because that whole thing about how they have shitty lives and they hate their wives and they just they, they just need to get out, they need to let off some steam. That's something that they repeat over and over. It's like the special K gimmick of like they got no respect and they just live off their parents' money. It's like like that whole thing. But they repeat the thing of this for the Carnage Crew just as much. So they finally decided who the Carnage Crew are. Yeah. And they stick with it for years. So it's actually a pretty important moment for them. And they're just these these cranky, miserable bastards where this is all they love doing is just hurting people, yep. brawling with people. And uh, after that, we get a segment outside. We Punk and Cabana are driving in a car on a wintry night, I guess after the show. Colt keeps excitedly talking about how the match he just won against Punk, going over moments in it. You can see Punk stewing, mostly silent, getting pissed off. Um, Punk eventually pulls over just erupts at Colt, tells him he was going to forfeit his plane ticket to Colt if he won, but since Colt's so selfish and hates driving so much, well, now Colt can drive himself back to Chicago. We see Punk walking down the cold, snowy Philadelphia street. Colt calls after him, trying to say, hey, you know, come back, don't be stupid. You know, we're you're in ghetto Philly, I think he said. Yep. And um, Colt eventually just gives up. I thought ROH flew both of them in. <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah, another thing that doesn't make sense. Doesn't, yeah, unless we weren't paying enough attention, <laughs> but 
it's not a horrible segment, not a great segment, but I did like that at least it was different than just being backstage. It was actually in a car. I like I like that they actually went to that trouble. And Colt Show starts to show his annoying personality. I mean, <laughs> that, I mean that in a good way. Some people would say he has an annoying personality otherwise. That's just some people. But somewhere else backstage, we have our last segment of the show. This is obviously a segment taped at a different show because it's Christopher Daniels, Donovan Morgan, and Simply Luscious recording a promo. They're hyping up the Daniels and Morgan versus SAT two out of three falls match for the tag titles on the next show, or tag trophy, I guess, at this point. Donovan Morgan is inspired by the San Francisco Giants promotion where fans got a free taco every time Barry Bonds hit a ball into the water. He says in honor of that, every time the SAT get a one count on the, on them in their match, he'll buy them a taco. He tried, uh, he tried to do the, the, the Giants tie-in to make it not sound racist, but it yeah. still sounded racist. And then Daniels talks a bit more, and then Morgan just randomly says, make a run for the border. So I wrote at this point, why doesn't Morgan just put on a sombrero to make it slightly less subtle? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, just just the most direct Mexican overtones, every cliche. Yeah. Um, Simply Luscious jumps in with her gimmick of saying the things that the prophecy don't want to hear, where she's like, you know... Ooh, the SAT are good and innovative. You know, what if what if you can't beat them or something like that? Yeah, or what, what, if, if what if they put you in one of those crazy moves that they just made up or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Daniels gets annoying, just tells her he has it all under control, which is his response all the time yeah, to I, her. Yeah, I will say Daniels, you know, for whatever the, his heelish character, he's very understanding. Like you know, yeah. and it, like 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 she keeps like you know Joe keeps like talking shit to him, and and you know Carino is stepped to him, and uh, simply Luscious has kind of made fun of him, and Daniel is always just like, hey, you know, no, 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 enough of that, I don't want to hear that. You know, he never really gets evil or angry or like does anything dastardly to people that cross him. He's just sort of like, eh, leave me alone. Like he's. He- He's in this role of this almost this put upon patriarch of the family where he's just yeah. trying to keep them together. He's like, ah, don't worry about it. Like, he'll come around. He's just moody. Like, he's always just smoothing things over, which, like you said, it's kind of a weird role for the leader of a heel stable who's just always kind of being reasonable and like letting things flop, tur- turning the other cheek. Yeah, it's interesting. It's also interesting, like, you know, I would talk about how, like, the, they're the prophecy, like, this, like, very serious thing, but their whole thing is they just, they don't want to shake hands. But, like, Daniels will still try to, like, throw in some of this, like, weird supernatural stuff. Like, he'll be like, I saw it in the prophecy. We're going to win. The, the prophecy told me. And he was like, like, are, so are you supernatural or are you just a bunch of guys that don't want to shake hands? Which is it? It's almost like Bray Wyatt-esque where it doesn't really mean anything, but it's just there for color. But I would say definitely Daniel's promos have a hundred times more um, actual meaning and, and substance than Wyatt promos. But there is like little stuff like that where he just tries to color the promo a bit with something that he doesn't really use otherwise. Well, it's almost like at this point where he still vaguely has the, uh, uh, at least in the original shows where he came out with his attire, the... Uh, kind of corrupt preacher gimmick, you know, the dark, you know, evil priest gimmick, but yet it's mostly just manifests in his ring attire. Like, it's not yeah. something he leans into. No, he doesn't act like a preacher in any way. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't talk like one, doesn't try to, yeah, exactly. So, um, they walk away and they leave their, uh, tag trophy behind and the camera zooms in on it. Guys, you forgot something. Mm-hmm. And that's how we end the show. That's, that's night of the butcher. This is one of those shows I had to do this show with you to figure out what I felt about it. Because it's weird. Because I think there's one great match. 
I don't think there's anything bad on the show. I mean, we would disagree with that one match, but yeah. mostly there's a lot of average and then one great match. That, so in a way, it's back to being a one-match show. Um, it, it's it's another sh- match show where don't buy the show. Go out and get the one match if you can find it. But at the same time, if you were forced to watch this show, you wouldn't like be in pain. It, uh, it, this was definitely not the worst ROH show. Like, no, that that's for sure. Like it, 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 it flowed well. You know, I guess it's a one match show in a way, but I think there was other entertaining stuff on it. You know, I thought you know the uh, I like I said I like the Punk and Cabana match more than you. I thought that you know the Easy Money uh, London match was entertaining. You know, there's some entertaining aspects to the Scramble match. Um, you know, I, I really was disappointed in the AJ Styles match. I thought it was one of the worst ones that I've seen of him in ROH uh, the, from to this point. But I, you know, it's. I'd say considering this is the first show where so many of their top guys were not there, uh, second show in a row without Loki, but then also didn't have Daniels or Samoa Joe on it, um, and Homicide was just in a weird match where he didn't get to, he just basically stood around while uh, Abdullah stabbed people with forks. I don't want to say he just stood around, he took some big bumps, but you know what I mean. He didn't really get to show his, his stuff too much. So considering all that, all the handicaps the show had, I thought it turned out okay. Yeah, it felt like a B show, but I still, in, in again, I thought the one match was great and nothing was painful, but it felt like a B show in the way that Ring of Honor shows at this time tried not to feel like, where there's no low-key, no Daniels, no Carino, obviously Spanky's been gone for a couple shows now, um, you, you're doing something that Ring of Honor hasn't really done before, which is try and fly in the big legend to make up for that, I guess, maybe. And just the fact that, you know, the tickets didn't sell well and the crowd's not big, it feels like a kind of a different than every other show in that way. It's like a lesser show, but yet there's a great match shot. There are storylines advanced. There is, you know, AJ getting a title shot was built up for a couple shows. Yeah, I would so, say it was better than I expected. Because I, yeah. I always thought of this as a B show, and I haven't you know, seen it in years. I'm not even sure if I ever really watched the whole thing. But it definitely was a better show than I expected because there are shows with better reputations that I thought were worse. Like I thought The Glory by Honor was worse. You know, I thought, the, honestly, probably The Era of Honor Begins as a full show was worse. Um, Night, of, Night of Appreciation was worse. So, And probably Unscripted was worse. So... I, you know, so in that sense, I was pleasantly surprised by it. Just, I think just the style of booking has gotten to the point where the shows are going to be better even when they're not good just because it's not, there's not all the crap and all the clutter. Even when the, even when the shows aren't great, they're more watchable now. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a good word. So that'll be the show for this time. Hopefully we'll be back now that we've settled down a bit and done some of our stuff. We'll be back a little more back to our more regular unpredictable schedule but a little more recent um next time we will be reviewing final battle 2002 the fight the first final battle and the final show of ring of honor's first year we will be it has paul london getting his title shot against xavier has a big four-way with brian danielson versus low key versus samoa joe versus steve carino and it will also be our first ever end of season award show where me and Matt are going to uh, review, have a, give out a few awards. 
kind of sum up 2002 Ring of Honor. I'm going to go through a few of the Observer things, see where Ring of Honor finishes some of the Observer rewards. So, I mean, awards, not rewards. And it, so it'll be, to Gabe, it's a reward. But it'll be a nice little sum up and it should be a lot of fun. And if you want to contact us, uh, you can email us at throughtheyears at gmail.com, spell through as T-H-R-O-H, at Trevor Dame on Twitter, although Dame, like hell of a Dame, that woman, um, at Mayor MGF for Matt on Twitter. Hashtag DV Thrombozos. DV Thrombozos, as always. Deep V, right? Not vein, V, deep, right? Deep, deep vein. Like, um, but we, but we, but the hashtag is DV because you want to save characters, you know? Okay. I mean? Okay. I got you. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to get this down before the next show. D- hashtag um, DVTHROHMBOZOS. <laughs> and pro wrestling only message board. We have a thread there. We have a thread on the figure four message board in the plug section. And we have a thread on the voices of wrestling message board. We love hearing from you good or bad recommend the show if you like it to someone if you think they would like it otherwise you don't have to you can just eat pudding and be happy matt anything else to say no just uh thank you to all of our deep vein thrombozos for listening um and until next time um listen to another episode of the show (laughs) (laughs) good night everybody